every Friday night after the League of Ireland games, a place for you to come to give your opinion to Ben. There's a little button down on the left-hand corner where you can say that you want to talk. Catch League of Ireland late night, Friday nights at 10 on Twitter Spaces. Follow at Off The Ball. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, it's half past seven this Thursday morning. It's nearly the weekend. We've nearly made it through another week. That's that's how everybody feels at the moment, isn't it? It, it, it definitely it's like we've survived to get to this part of the week. Do you get a Friday feeling on a Thursday? Not really, because I also work Fridays. I just don't you? work with you, right? I mean, I come in for the quiz, and then yeah. I, you know, you that's home. all I do. That's what I thought. Yeah, pretty much. Right. There is no there is no radio show in the evening. No, there is there is you no main do a show. Beef is real between the the morning show and the evening show, shouldn't you? De- definitely, definitely. Now that uh, angry producer Mick is back, no, oh, yeah, it definitely uh, will ratchet it up. I think to a whole new level. Yeah, it'll become a, a, a little bit of a little bit of a uh, I, I'd say an, an all out um, hatred of one another rather than just a beef. I'd say. When are you um, putting them on the quiz? Or never this week? Oh, did this week? Uh, I mean, have you asked him? I haven't actually. <laughs> Bring APM back to the quiz. It's uh, it's going to happen soon. See, the thing is, the standard has been so poor that I worry that he would come in and actually just win it, just destroy everyone. So I need to put him on just him and Phil head to head or something like that. Well, I mean, there could be a special round where we're all watching and then the real quiz happens afterwards. Yeah, it's actually a good idea. The exhibition, like you're you're the kind of the, the primary game at halftime, and the main game is actually just uh, make against Phil. You you say primary as in primary schools, primary schools, as yeah, opposed sorry, to primary yeah. as in to, yeah, as the, kid, first. the kids come on at halftime and kick a ball around. Yeah, no, that's the the Hardham Globetrotters versus whoever they always beat. What's the team they always beat? I can't remember the New York, something. the Washington, something Washington. It's not the Wizards. No, yeah. uh, I can't remember who it was. Uh, somebody will let us know in the comments on the YouTube stream, uh, which is the best place to get in touch the with generals. Us. the generals, the Washington Generals. Or of course, you can always um, text the show oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty. That's a WhatsApp or a text, whatever suits you. And you can get us at off the ball AM. A reminder: OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, your boy Timo Werner was uh, to the four last night mm-hmm. um, scored one made one an important goal for Lukaku to win the game against Luton mm. uh, on a dramatic night for Chelsea on and off the pitch okay so it's an FA Cup tie they come back from 1-0 down and 2-1 down and they win after Thomas Tuchel snapping the day before in the press conference there was a lot of attention on but um, the news broke beforehand that Roman Abramovich is putting the club up for sale not a fire sale definitely not a fire sale definitely not me trying to extract myself from any scenario where I might be um, you know uh, having stuff seized which is what they've done to the Germans the Germans just decided they were going to take one of the super yachts it's like that's ours now you can't have it back which it was exactly what I was talking about yesterday what's the difference between a super yacht and a football club when it comes to what the government sees or the law sees it's like here is an asset here is an asset we're taking this they just did it they were like that's you can't have that anymore uh, we, we don't we don't trust we don't trust this or your relationship with Russia and we don't trust the, the power that the oligarchs are wielding but Abramovich is being allowed to write off his debts and donate the money to fund or, or fund or funds as yet undecided and he said the victims of the war so obviously we'll see exactly where that money goes because you, know, you have to be sceptical about everything that every single piece of information you're getting from anybody at this stage when there is a war on you have to be very sceptical about why don't they just take the club and say you can't you don't get to decide it's not your club anymore it's not yours it's an asset that we've we've, we've frozen 
and we're taking over and we're going to dispose of it as we decide. And maybe that's the point where you give it to the charitable trust and the charitable trust is then handed over to the, the fans of Chelsea at 51% and they sell 49% and they make enough money off the 49% to run the club for really well for the next however long. Like, it's right there. Everything is right there for them if they choose to do this. But it looks like it is just going to be a fire sale to the quickest billionaire to get their money ready. You can have this. Here you go. Um, you know, are, 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 uh, are all the people involved in the deal also waving the money? Like, uh, it's a massive uh, PR win in a situation where you shouldn't have this asset anymore. Like, if, if the world is deciding that the sanctions that they're taking on the oligarchs is going to be to take their stuff, Abramovich gets this kind of weird limbo where it's like, actually, you know what, I'm, I'm giving all this money away. Look mm. at me, I'm great. I've, I've gifted Chelsea two billion. He hasn't gifted Chelsea two billion. They doesn't have the money anymore. This stuff about uh, the Everton situation was like, oh, Everton are going to lose. Everton are costing themselves this money by not uh, taking the, the sponsorship deals anymore. The money doesn't exist. The money won't exist in like next week or the week after when the sponsorship deals are all, when the, the assets are, are, are frozen. So they're not. They're simply getting out in front and saying, we're going to lose this money anyway. We better like, take some credit for doing it. Like... <clears throat> yeah, See? and it, it could be literal credit as well. Like, I mean, uh, when you say, why don't... Uh, they act in England to, to to try and take back control of this club. Well, I wonder is Abramovich actually concerned that that's exactly what's going to happen? And he's like, I need to get out now. I need to get out quickly. Please, Mister Swiss billionaire, uh, give me whatever money you can. I will ask for three billion. But well, the Swiss billionaire is chatting away to everybody, going, yeah. "Oh, we've we've been offered this. If we get the money by Friday, it's ours." Yeah. Like uh, that was largely what he said. You're in a great bargaining position if you're you're the buyer now, though, because Abramovich needs to sell quick, and he, he obviously wants three billion quid and uh, you'll be able to talk him down off that pretty quickly if you say listen we're, we're off the table we're not going to be sitting around here if, uh, if that's what you want and automatically you get a, a cut price Chelsea but he gets away with all of the reputational 100%. benefit which was the whole point of buying this it was, it was always supposed to be a buffer it was a, a break glass in case of emergency the emergency is at the moment Putin invading Ukraine and murdering people and um, as that happens as that unfolds in front of our, our eyes every day uh, Abramovich is getting credit for his investments. The, the great disruptor is what he was referred to as uh, in the Telegraph this morning. And you're like, I mean, yeah, so he took all this money from uh, the Russian people's resources and ploughed it into football and made a load of footballers rich and made other Premier League clubs rich. And <clears throat> where did the money come from? Oh, yeah, the Russian people who are all being screwed by Putin now at the moment as well, because it was the nationalisation of Russia's assets that got distributed to the oligarchs. And then they took all the money and they've gone around the world and they've bought super yachts and they've bought football clubs. And instead of giving it back to the people... Now, like the assets that they've transferred the money from here over to here, it's like <clears throat> such a good lad. He's letting off two billion. What a great fella! And he's giving all the money to charity. Who can who can have any? How can anybody have a problem with that? What kind of a clown has a problem with that? Mm. I have a problem with that. I don't think it's right. Yeah, like I mean, there, there is obviously like a, a parallel conversation though, when something like this, something this seismic happens in football, where you do automatically wind the clock back and you think about 2003 and, and how things were disrupted. I mean, like you could be a great disruptor and also be uh, not a great lad. I mean, those two things aren't you necessarily, know, go, they don't go hand in hand. It's very close to the, the trains running on time argument. Do you know, it's, yeah. it's a bit like, like 
uh, yeah, and so the Saudis are going to be the, the latest great disruptors. But where did the money come from? Yeah, well, hundred percent. I'm not like, like for, for for one second justifying um, Abramovich's existence in, in English football whatsoever. But there was no question that his arrival in English football did completely change the game. I kind of feel weird even saying that sentence, as if we're kind of like sitting here analysing the era of Abramovich, almost like a manager, almost as if like a, a great manager just passed away or something like that. I do think that it probably requires a, a little bit of a, a different analysis for now anyway because as you said there's a real chance that he gets away uh, scot-free essentially scurries away and we, we never hear from Abramovich again because right now we I mean without the Chelsea Football Club how much would we actually know about him in our day-to-day life well, let's say we, we probably don't know much about him anyway and uh, that this has been the, the, the sole way with which he's communicated with the world There's breaking news this morning as well that the International Paralympic Committee have reversed their decision and Russian and Belarusian athletes will not now be allowed to compete at the Beijing Winter Paralympics so they're being kicked out um, they were going to be allowed to compete under uh, the neutral flag or the flag of the games or whatever uh, accommodation was being made for them but like we've seen that that has re- resulted in massive national pride in the past and everybody goes the Russian athlete competing under the blah 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 flag so that's not going to happen now and that's just breaking in the last 20 minutes look we'll come back to this a little bit later on we're going to talk football with um, Daniel Harris and uh, we'll also uh, bring you some Formula One goodness, but I want to play you this. So this is um, this is a, a, a very interesting what if scenario, which is posited on the football pod this week by James O'Donoghue. Here he is in conversation with Paddy Andrews and with Tommy Rooney, just talking about the dubs, right? Like just just for example, say what would happen if Khan didn't come back and James McCarthy didn't come back, or if they do come back, what kind of state are they going to be in? Are they are they peak position? Let's just have a look at this fit are they at the moment like how how far I, off are they are they probably fair me and you James <laughs> are they running I don't talk to the lads I'm on the outside now I'm finished Eddie, are yeah. they running come on yeah. you know like, are they running like are they I'd are say they they're running faster than me like because if they're not at least up to 80% they're, they're not going to have the time they're not going to have the time I don't think to get up to their level they're I don't know honestly even even I tell like, the football pod listeners. If you, you could think- say, Paddy, how many games would you say it would take for you to go from completely unsharp, yeah, to All Ireland winning sharp? How many well, games you, do you, you need? Like, like you can do all the training games and stuff from the world and and hit training targets. That everyone needs games, and and like we're talking about two of the best players in the country, and, and, and McCarthy probably one of the best players of all time. But Grant you do need games. You do. And like you, you said it, James, this season is a unique season in terms of you always had that window that if the league finishes in, at the start of April, you had the club stuff for a month, you'd play two or three games, then you'd like a month of kind of nearly pre-season and then you roll into championship. That's not a luxury teams have this year. You've got to, be, it's literally league into championship and you have got to be sharp and yeah, of course, Dublin are going to want those guys. They're going to want those guys back, obviously, because they're going to have three massive games in March to try and somehow pull out, pull it out of the bag and stay in Division One. But, but for those players as well, I know for myself, from my own experience, two or three games, just nearly to get the confidence up, get the touch up, to take sharpen everything up by half a second. Yeah. You know, when you're coming back and you haven't played games, or you feel like you're not match sharpness you'll take an extra step on your shot or you'll, you'll look twice before flicking the pass. Yeah, I think they need a, at least two league games because 
how much of a white heat of championship is Leinster? Well, that's uh, the other question about that one. Uh, Tommy, good morning to you. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Owen. What's your take on this? You, you, you know, you get the the offcuts, the before and after chats. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there there isn't that many of them. I'll be honest with you, lads. There's too much talking going on. In those well, when podcasts, the pa- when so. the podcast's two hours long, I suppose there couldn't be. But go on. Exactly. Uh, well, I suppose I've had the honour of watching Dublin unravel in front of my eyes. I've been at quite a few games with Paddy over the last couple of years, and I think Paddy's own dealings with myself in the middle of matches has been interesting. Do you know there was a, a quiet resignation at the weekend on Saturday? He nudged me before it and said, or Sunday, he said, Do you know, what do you think is going to happen here? And I said, I think Calera win. He wanted to put a fiver on it. The Dubs get beaten. Shaking his head during the game at times, whereas last year there was a bit more shouting and roaring coming out of him. I think he knows what he's seeing in front of him. There's no um, squeezing of the knee going on, is that what you're saying? It's not happening. Yeah. So, um, what I think is happening here, like I, I actually agree with James Dunhu, I think it's going to be very difficult for anyone to come in and make a huge difference to Dublin at the minute. I think they're they're a long way off it, like I think. Um, while they didn't play that badly against Kildare and if they had taken their goals they would have beaten them we might be having a different conversation I just think the, the general depth there is so far off I just think it, it's just so stark in comparison to what Mayo's depth is at the minute We've got an interesting dynamic here for everybody at home who can't see Ger shuffling uncomfortably in his chair at the moment is that we have <laughs> somebody who has just overseen their county defeat Dublin and is worried that that is not going to be a meaningful result come the summertime You are terrified well, of the dubs you don't being wanna, good at football you don't, want to, you don't want the, the two games we play against Dublin this year if we play them again you don't want the two games this year to break 50-50 like do you know what I mean yeah. how many no, times you know but actually you're more likely to beat them having beaten them and uh, it was interesting uh, is it Patty in the Leinster is he the chairman or the secretary uh, whatever his, I, I, I apologise for incorrectly titling you but even he's saying it would have been interesting to see what the hell would have happened if Kildare had any belief that they could have beaten them last year it's like that? it's like a it's like a subtle, not so subtle dig at Jack O'Connor sending that team out to go. Sure, look, if we keep it kicked out to them, we'll be we'll be doing well. Keep it down ten or fifteen points here. That's not bad. That's progress. That's clear progress. Mm. He's like, if they just shown a bit of belief in themselves last year, who knows what happened? Mm. I'm like, yes, yes. Sorry, I just had to bring that in there. But um, why are we Sorry. turning this into a piece about Kildare? Well, I just, I just, <laughs> just, it's just interesting that that's kind of like your body language, and that's kind of how you're. you're I trying just to don't play think the zombie the... is dead. I but don't think the zombie has had the second thing, like through the stake through the heart for the vampire, or whatever it is that actually kills a zombie these days. Yeah, like I mean, it it, it is kind of like Voldemort dying, and uh, there is a chance that he like comes back as and uses yeah. another body as like a, a host for him, and all of a sudden uses that to, to gradually grow into his own. Uh, evil being once again and well, I, everybody's I, terrified because of all the evil things that have happened in the past exactly. and people don't want to believe PTSD. that Voldemort is back and but I, it so could happen can I just can I posit one scenario which is not completely ridiculous that the the amount of game time and the return to play I would have said Khan didn't look as, as dynamic last season as he has done in previous years I don't know if that was like the the long seasons with Kula catching up over a couple of years I don't know if it was just like a, that happens to you at various stages in your career and you would say James McCarthy was excellent for most of the year but certainly he seemed like a, a you know, Cúhullin fighting the ingovernable sea in the last 20 minutes of the game against Mayo overrun in midfield which I'd never seen before right so I think what they're doing is they're saying off you go off you go get, get right and like how much time do you really need did you need the the two club matches the month of pre-season and the two Leinster games really or is it actually okay to do the two Leinster games and peak for 
the first time this year in a Leinster final in Croke Park which is what Dublin can realistically do oh, maybe they can't maybe they lose a the semi-final but if they lose a the semi-final it's like not going to be that scary a route through the qualifiers for them yeah I, I think I think you're, uh, it's interesting what you're saying about Con last year my sense of Con last year was that he was utterly frustrated was that uh, standards had clearly changed around them and things weren't working the way they should have been working the players were doing stuff they shouldn't have been doing and we saw that last year um, maybe it was maybe it was burnout maybe it was what other parents have experienced in Dublin and they've stepped away like Jack McCaffrey and, and Paul Mannion um, for me last year I thought it was frustration I think it's what we're also seeing in the likes of Niall Scully and Brian Howard and maybe Brian Fenton they're not used to playing in a team that just isn't functioning the way it is the way that Dublin played for six, five, six years the team that th- those lads came into they slipped into a side that were at the very very top of their game Yeah, and it's very difficult for them now not to be the standard setters because I'm sure they've always set standards but to be the leaders on the pitch the ones that are calling the shots that are making making the the, the shouts the changes uh, Paddy could recognise who it was at the weekend but there was a lot of talking on the pitch from Dublin Johnny Cooper did so much of that Johnny Cooper has already made a big difference So, and I suppose James questioning like <clears throat> James like James Donahue I think uh, has come from a, a stage in his career where, where he had to try and get up to championship fitness and he probably struggled to do so for three or four years fair enough so I think I think I, that's the point he's making I, is that I accept, the Munster Championship doesn't help. I accept he has way more uh, evidence and information and experience of this than I do. But I do also think there's another scenario. Well, uh, just to, if, we, if we are going off evidence here, like the evidence is that Conor Callaghan was named to start a full forward in a game this year in the National League for Dublin. So he got mm-hmm. injured. Um, there were various reports about where, where, where the injury was, was picked up. So something happened that he was chosen to play a game or he would would have been in the ideal starting team for Desi Farrell within the first couple of weeks of this year's league and then that didn't happen. So that idea that Desi Farrell has said to Conor Callaghan go and get yourself right we don't need you for the early stages of the league well, that's just, that just didn't happen Well they're wrapping him up in cotton wool and they're taking every precaution I'm so sure there's like a tiny tax now because he's picked up a knock yeah. that, that, that might, was, like, Which game was he named for? Kerry Kerry yeah. and uh, yeah. Kieran Archer took the 14 jersey instead like it, it reportedly a, a challenge match took place a week or two before that and, and that's where uh, So a week or two before up. and he was named in the, in the thing which is sent to the like, do you know what I mean? They, they decided before they named the team that he was in the, he was gone. It seemed it seemed that way. Or otherwise, they were playing challenge matches between our man Kerry, which is maybe another explanation, which could be another theory for why they've been so poor is that they're actually completely running the teams <laughs> into the ground and playing challenge. Ma- but I don't think that's the case. I think it might have been before the Armagh match. But so either way, it seemed that Plan A was to have Conor Callaghan available well, for the league this year. Uh, no, if they if they knew he was out, but they named him in the team anyway, what's that about? Well, that would just be an unnecessary leap to try and confuse people. But <laughs> I if don't he got know, injured, it's very hard to know. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's I, I, we don't know is the point, right? And until until I'm standing over the bloodied corpse, I don't. I'm I am Daddy Thomas putting my wound and feeling around in Jesus's body to go. Oh, oh, there's a bit of you came out there, Jesus. But you, but you see, that's the thing. Like, I mean, I don't think even that is good enough. Like, you, you refer to it as a zombie. I mean, I, I guess Jesus was technically a zombie as well. Like, it is. It, death is not even enough for us to be sure that this thing is over. No, they need to lose a couple of seasons in a row. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I think it, even this year we'll be like, no, no, there's still too many of them. There's just. They're coming back. Yeah, it's going to be like Cody's Kilkenny, I think, lads, isn't it? Like the bouncing back with double All Ireland's, back to back All Ireland's, a couple of years apart. See, like, this I think is we're going to see that. Tommy made the point yesterday, though. We we were the same team, 
Yeah, Tommy Walsh made made that point. We were still the same team because I would have okay. bought into that, Tommy definitely. But I before I tipped all Dublin to win the All Ireland at the end of last year because I thought that that's exactly what would have happened that there would have been a sting in the tail. But I think the early evidence this year is that that is unlikely to happen. Well, I think you thought Paul Lanyon was coming back, and uh, yeah, maybe. But even even some of the players that that you kind of trust and uh, like they haven't even been playing up to their own standard which I guess is something that, that gives them a, a level of hope but yeah Manning coming back McCaffrey coming back would have been great I don't think anybody thought that was going to happen and um, mm. and there was still I thought a question mark over, over Cluxton but uh, that was just maybe a bit uh, naive on my part to think that that would have happened so I, I, I did think that, that there was a real chance that this was going to happen and it still could obviously like nobody's saying that they're outside the contenders because everybody in those top 8 to 10 teams feels like a contender at the moment but I don't think they're in the same place as Kilkenny were after losing in 2010 uh, I, I think that they were pro- probably a, a, a stronger proposition back then because they had so many players still around do you- I think serious questions do have to be asked though lads about and I noticed the Sackridge say I think that Jim Gavin did greater than any manager could have possibly done with the six years he had with that team seven years but is it okay to question the transition and the management of what was coming next because I read out a list of Paddy of the last 12 13 14 under 20 under 21 players of the year and Dublin have had three of the last eight and none of them have had an impact in inter-county football at senior level and nearly all of the others did you're talking Keith Higgins Colin O'Neill uh, Flinton Gould Thomas Flynn and Galway uh, Jeremy O'Connor from Mayo Jimmy Hyland from Kildare they've all had massive impacts on, on inter-county football at senior level yet Conor McHugh Aaron Byrne and granted Kieran Archer are still young but none of them seem like they're ready or they're being able to take the responsibility of being a senior inter-county footballer Conor McHugh won it in 2014 he was under 20 footballer of the year on a team that included Mannion McCaffrey McDade uh, three or four others that well they did okay from that like, team then you'd have to say that team like you can't question them getting throughput from that team that one individual is is I would say circumstantial evidence I think your mm. your broader point though um, to take it away from the, the individuals is that there hasn't been the, that next tier of players the the strength and depth was with the the older players who were who retired and, and took away all of the experience and the intellectual property and the, the knowledge and the know-how and all that kind of stuff and the standard setting and the, the ones who are coming in probably haven't had enough exposure certainly to game time now they might have been around the panel like mm. you know but maybe that doesn't make a difference maybe you're collecting all our medals there but you're not getting the real life experience do you know maybe it's I don't know what, I don't know what the fix is there though because they're getting he could have done though. better with the squad he had you know like this, this is when that real life experience is gained and that that's maybe what Desi Farrell is thinking to himself at the moment it's like that this is not ideal right now but it's a necessary thing that unfortunately or fortunately just wasn't available to these players over the last couple of years because they were too good the players in front of them were too good and everything was rosy in the garden Dublin were winning consecutive All-Irelands so there was no way that this could have happened it was just a natural consequence like we must forget that this was a historically good team like there, there yeah. is no well, stencil for how you, you actually organise conveyor belts post six All-Irelands in a row because they're the only team to have ever done six in a row Yeah, now you'd have to say they didn't get enough credit for that during the time that uh, certainly I thought that there would be a bunch of players of similar standard coming through and it looked like there was when Howard and Scully came through and started to be able to impact games at that age in their careers where they were I know Tommy you're saying they're coming into a a perfect scenario but they were definitely having an influence where Con was having an influence it felt like they were able to bring players of that standard in and so what's happened is that the next group of players coming through have not lived up to that and so 
if you were to add in, say, say, Con was back, say, Mannion was still around, say, McCarthy was there, and you added in three three more players of that standard. All of a sudden, that's a completely tra- transformed team. That's six players of uh, greatness who you have, but that that hasn't happened, and. That's, I, I think, where it's legitimate to go. What is the process that they have to try and bring those players through? And, and why are those players not coming through? And why is the club scene... You know, Paul Caffrey said the club games have been boring, that the quality of football being played isn't good enough, that the creativity isn't there. So um, There was also a... I just, of, sorry, go on, Tommy. I just was going to put it on record that maybe we're lucky we never split Dublin in two. Well, you know, no. You may have. Maybe, <laughs> but like... I actually don't agree with that at all. Like it's still a completely idiotic championship where Longford go up against Dublin. True. Like makes no sense. Yeah. Makes no I'll sense. Tongue in cheek, but yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. But I think that is the big question is like where did those players go? Like I think if, if Connor McHugh, Aaron Byrne win an under twenty one player of the year, they're immediately put into an intercounty side. They're being thrown into Lancer Championship. Sure they're getting beaten for a couple of years, but they're getting the chance to develop. I feel like some of those players were banished to being nothing players. They were not, weren't even making the B team in training. They were getting like, they weren't even minutes. making the B team. Yeah, and, and were, I, yeah. like you know, Jimmy Highland has matured this season. Like he he had injury problems because he was coming through and playing for loads of loads of teams as well. So like yes. the, the, the pathway isn't straightforward. And Jimmy Highland's obviously absolutely sensational. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe Archer needs another couple of years of conditioning or something, or maybe he needs to decide that he actually wants to do the, the level of commitment that is required to be a Dublin Intercounty footballer Like the thing about splitting Dublin in two is that if you split Dublin in two one of those Dublins would have won in All-Ireland over the last little while like, so it's uh, I think people are analysing it but like it's, it's a completely nonsensical notion and uh, I, I think I'm, I'm not sure that's going to I'm not sure that's going to co- constantly hold up over the next little while but there was also the, 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 the last thing that is that there was also a bunch of players there during the Jim Gavin era that just got better like Cluxton got better under under Jim Gavin Philly McMahon is yeah. somebody who really improved Brian Fenton is somebody who didn't make or sorry did make the 21s team didn't make minor he comes through and constantly improves under under Jim Gavin Paul Mannion I thought at the start wasn't going to reach the level that Paul Mannion eventually reached uh, Conor Callaghan is an exception to that because he came in and was exceptional from the very start but there was a whole tranche of players who came in as good players and became great players within that system. Yeah, Scully, I think you'd have to, and Howard as well. Right. Paddy Andrews is your, uh, is your good example there as well, you know, without yeah. Jim Gavin, I'm not sure where Paddy would have ended up. Yeah, no, totally. So, um, all right, Tommy, thanks, good pod thanks, this week. Man. Thanks a million. Yeah, that's good stuff from the lads, thank you. The football pod with, um, I still I still reach for the old name, but with James O'Donoghue and Paddy Andrews and Tommy Rooney is available wherever you get your podcast now. OTBIM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. The new season of, oh, here's what's coming up, uh, Daniel Harris in 10 minutes, sports pages at 8.30. We talk about Phil Mickelson not winning the pip. Uh, Tiger Woods didn't hit the ball and was the uh, winningest golfer when it came to influence. Uh, power rankings hurling at 8.50. Jason Quigley is going to join us live at 10 past nine and some highlights from the football show last night. Now, the new season of Formula One's Drive to Survive drops on Netflix on Friday night. That's March the 11th. Shane Hannan has been chatting to the producers Paul Martin and James Gay-Reese. Delighted to be joined by uh, Paul Martin and James Gay-Reese from Box to Box Films, of course, both producers of Formula One Drive to Survive, season four of which is to be released on Netflix on Friday, March the 11th. Thanks to both of you lads for taking the time to speak to us uh, about this new season. Um, and speaking of which, could, could either of you have imagined an end to the season as dramatic as the one which played out before our eyes in, in Abu Dhabi back in, back on December 12th. Maybe start with you, Paul. No, <laughs> basically, <laughs> you know, you know, despite rumours that we wrote it, um, you know, I think we were both, you know, that we, I think we both 
or, you know, I speak for myself, you know, we just watched it with, you know, in kind of awe of, of what was kind of unfolding. And no, we could never have imagined it, you know, or, you know, begun to imagine it. It was such an extraordinary finish to, to an extraordinary season that, that, you know, that I think it was like, you know, we're in the edit and, and we're trying to edit that episode. And and in all the, you know, in, in everything that went on in Abu Dhabi, you sort of, I think everyone lost sight of what a crazy race Saudi Arabia had been the week, you know, the week before. Um, so, yeah, I think the whole end of the season was, was, was just crazy and, and, you know, very fortunate to, to be making the show this year. For sure. I mean, from your perspective, James, I guess, uh, even in the trailer, Pierre Gasly, I think, makes the quotes, what are we going to talk about this year? Which, which uh, tongue in cheek, of course. But like, were you thinking over the course of, of even the first three quarters of that race in Abu Dhabi or, or even a little bit more, you know, Hamilton's going to win this quite easily. He's going to win the championship. Maybe a bit of an anticlimax. We're not going to get that final last battle between him and Max. Uh, what was going through your head uh, before that final battle occurred in Abu Dhabi? Well, you know, it'd been such a sort of like um, a, a sort of seesaw, hadn't it? Because, you know, Max had pulled away, then Hamilton has slowly reeled him in. So, you know, I think the, the season kind of chopped and changed so much. So I think, you know, listen, it would, would have been an immensely gratifying season even without that final denouement because there'd been so much action. I mean, the, the two races prior to Abu Dhabi were pretty insane and by anybody's standards. So, no, I think, listen, that was just the kind of like, <laughs> that was the kind of like the madness that tipped over the line, you know, and, you know, Listen, great, great drama for, uh, for everybody concerned, I suppose, unless you're a Mercedes team member. But, um, but, you know, but a challenge for us to kind of basically deal with because we had very little time to edit those episodes, but we knew that there'd, there'd be massive scrutiny on those episodes. So, you know, very, very, very happy with the way those last two episodes have turned out because they are, they're like rocket fuel. <laughs> of course. And like, I guess this question for either of you, like in terms of cinematography, when you think about those last few laps uh, and look, the, the, the television pictures, of course, were, were excellent that we all saw live. But uh, is it tough to get that point of difference when you're then trying to show everyone the same images that they saw on television, the same battle they saw on television? Uh, but, you know, give it a kind of almost like a, an aerial dogfight kind of vibe. I think Lewis Hamilton used the phrase constant warfare in the in the uh, uh, trailer for this season as well. So can it be tough to get that point of difference in cinematography between what we see in the television and then what we see in, in Drive to Survive? I think it's like, we, you know, we, we, we're we lucky that, you know, as well as it's stuff that, that we shoot over a race weekend, we have access to, you know, the numerous, numerous cameras that, that Formula One have at an event. And obviously, you know, you know, the broadcast is is you know, a pretty constant kind of pattern of, of cameras and camera shots, but they do film, you know, film on film those races from, you know, every conceivable angle. And so even from, you know, even from day one on Drive to Survive, it was, you know, I think one of those points of difference is that we were able to dive into that footage and edit the races in a, in a completely different way from, from broadcast, which then gives you, you know, which we can do it in a much more dramatic style than, than they could possibly do on, on the broadcast. Like we've even heard for next year, there there'll be these uh, the FIA discussions, I guess, with the team principals. Michael Massey, I know, has uh, been stepped aside or moved aside or whatever you might call it. But uh, these discussions that we hear on television between the the team principals and the FIA will no longer be there. Does that does that affect you guys? I presume you'll still have access anyway, given that the series is released after the fact. Yeah, we'll just have to see, you know. We're still, I think, you know, AC season five hasn't been confirmed yet, but I think also just the kind of the fallout from the whole affair, I think, is still slightly ongoing. So we'll just have to see how the dust settles and see what we've got to, uh, you know, what, what's at our disposal to use um, come um, next year, if we do next year. But I think that 
one thing you can guarantee is that there'll be more than enough uh, content to use. And, you know, obviously we'll film our own stuff if it happens. Absolutely. Like, I, I often think about the the element of, of uh, luck and, and, and I guess the, the number of dramatic incidents that seem to happen uh, in, in number of seasons. Like we had the, the crazy episode. I think it was the penultimate episode of season three, Man on Fire, uh, when we saw the Roman Grosjean crash. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that highlights how, how dramatic a sport it is when you see how many incidents there is to cover from this season alone. Like this is probably your most action-packed season of, of the series, it's fair to say. I think, it was a, I think it was different. I think that, you know, that Drive Survive had never necessarily been about the championship battle because there hadn't really necessarily been one for, for kind of four years. And I think this year, because it was such a compelling, you know, fight between Max and Lewis, you know, it the, the temptation actually was to, you know, or, you know, the challenge with that was, you know, that you were always drawn to that. You know, every time we talked about, okay, well, oh, well, let's, you know, should we go back to Mercedes and, and Red Bull, or should we, you know, so we we had to kind of keep very true to the spirit of Drive Survive, which is not necessarily about the winners of kind of every race and the winners of the championship. It's about other storytelling. It's about, you know, what's going on with Haas, what's going on with, you know, Alpine, what's going on with, you know, what's what's happening with, you know, Yuki and and, and those guys. So, you know, it was um it was a unique season, you know, because of that. Um and and because we had, you know, we had something that we'd never had before, which was a genuine championship fight that that went to the last the last lap of the last race. Like we we talk a lot here and off the ball about about how the show has has certainly increased interest in Formula One, uh, anecdotally. Um, like, have you guys noticed that yourselves? Even from the drivers' perspective, I guess, as you mentioned there, like you know, you cover a lot of the the smaller quote unquote teams, um, like Haas, like Alpine, like these teams that mightn't have the money of Red Bull and Mercedes. So maybe all twenty drivers on the grid now are recognisable if they walk into a supermarket, whereas you know five ten years ago that mightn't have been the case. So. Are you guys anecdotally noticing that in, increased interest in the sport as a result of, of the show? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, it's no secret <laughs> that the ratings, you know, on terrestrial, you know, on Sky rather, have, you know, gone up. And I think that, you know, obviously America has a kind of like, you know, a big interest in the sport now and is adding new, new Grand Prix all the time to the calendar. So, yeah, I mean, listen, I think it's been transformative in that respect. I think the audience is getting younger from what we understand, which is obviously great because at the end of the day, all these different sports are competing for the same eyeballs, aren't they? So they're trying to get younger viewers and stay with them and grow with them. And I think that it, you know, due to the nature of the show, it has attracted a younger audience away from a traditional kind of core, maybe middle-aged male audience, you know? So that's a great thing. And I think, um, you know, you know, at the end of the day, we're just a couple of guys trying to make a decent TV show. And, you know, the fact that people have respond to it is fantastic because it, we, we work really hard at the show. And so for, to get this sense that a lot of people are watching it is obviously very gratifying because it's a visual medium and you want people to see it. Um, but it's good for the sport, you know. If it's good for the sport, it's good for us. And if it's good for us, it's good. For, do you know what I mean? It's a very, it's a virtuous circle in a way. So um, we're just happy that it's connects, connected with such a wide audience. I mentioned luck there a minute ago. Like, I, I, I think I'm right in saying in, in that uh, Monza, you were, you were, I guess you have to focus on a particular uh, team for certain races. And in Monza, you were, you happened to be with McLaren for that uh, wonderful one, two from Daniel Ricciardo and Lando Norris. So is it now the case that teams want Netflix to be in with them for a race? Are you seen as a, as a good luck charm in some ways? I think it depends, you know, what weekend it is. You know, I've heard that I've heard there's a Netflix curse. I've heard that we're a good luck charm. I've heard, I heard everything, you know, I mean, I think, you know, it's just a dramatic sport. 
you know, it's, it's just a sport that's full of drama. So, you know, if you're around the teams, drama is going to happen. And I think, you know, I think that, you know, all that stuff about the curse and stuff is, is firmly tongue in cheek, I think. But I know, but it was basically because when we followed Mercedes at Hockenheim, was it season two or three? Season two. Season yeah. two. And they had their worst race in five years. You know, So it's like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Well, but listen, it's, it's a sport of inherent drama, you know, everywhere. And that's why the show's so great to make and, and so great to be involved in, because it doesn't, you know, sometimes we get lucky and sometimes we, we kind of don't and we can't be everywhere and we can't be with every team at, at every race. And, you know, touch wood, we've, we've, we've sort of had more luck than than not. And, you know, we seem to have a, a, a good habit of being in the right place at the right time. For sure. I mean, it's made me fall in love with, with Gunther Steiner and, and Daniel Ricciardo in particular. Uh, very finally, lads, a quick fire one um, for the two of you. Favourite driver, favourite team principal and favourite circuit? Ooh, don't know if we can go, Controversial. Like, we can go on record as saying who our favourites <laughs> are because we'll we're seeing them all later on tonight, so we'll get in trouble. But um, uh, oof, don't know. I mean... It's a tricky one. It's tricky. You're getting in trouble regardless. It's tricky. I mean, listen, Gunter. Everyone loves Gunter, and and you know we're we're the same. And you know he's been, you know, to to see to see you know him, you know, kind of step into kind of the spotlight of Formula One, a sport that he'd been in for you know twenty years, and you know by his own admission, you know, no one even looked twice at him. And and you know, I remember after the season one came out and he came up to us and said, you know, he'd been in the restaurant in Australia, in Sydney. And so I was like, it's you, isn't it? It's you. And he's like, yeah, it's me. It's me. And he's like, no, 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 you're the guy. You're the guy from that show. And he's like, yeah. He's like, never happened to him in, in 20 years. And so, you know, that's, you know, that that's kind of what it's about. And so I think, you know, I think it's no secret that we, we do have a soft spot for Gunter because he's been, he's just been a great character for the show. I'm a closet Charles and Clerk fan and I want to marry my daughter. So I'm going to try and make that <laughs> yeah. happen. <laughs> and uh, I think we want to do more with him next year if we do next year. So yeah, more, more Charles and Clerk, please. Yeah, and I think Absolutely. our favorite, our favorite circuit. Well, my favorite circuit is Sao Paulo, but that's more for the nights out than the. the actual <laughs> it's a good enough reason. It's a good enough reason. I can understand that. Uh, listen, lads, it's been great with your time. Paul Martin, James Gay Reese, producers of Formula One Drive to Survive. A reminder for people: season four released on Netflix Friday, March eleventh. Lads, thanks a million for your time. Thanks, Thank mate. you. Bye, bye bye. OTB. You heard there from Laura Ward of Sarshields with Will O'Callaghan and Killian Whelan on the final episode of the Club Championship show. Our Club Championship coverage on Off the Ball is brought to you by AIB, proud sponsors of the Football Hurling and Camogie All Ireland Club Championships. Check out the hashtag The Toughest for more. We'll chat to Will a little bit later on for the hurling power rankings, which were pretty controversial this week on the hurling pod. Um, Chase Gale had. Limerick outside the top six and Wexford number one last week in advance of what they did at the weekend. So uh, it's true that they have known their onions on that show so far. Um, big shoes to fill, obviously, because they're just copying old chains. Uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit later on too. 11 minutes past eight this morning. Time for us to turn our attention back to football. Daniel Harris is with us. Daniel, good morning to you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Hi, everyone. So um, we can talk about uh, the rebirth of Timo Werner as an important uh, constituent part of Chelsea's bid to try and win the Champions League and the FA Cup we can talk about Liverpool's B team uh, looking pretty good we can talk about the situation at Manchester United but um, I did want to start by talking about uh, club ownership generally and the opportunity that is there right now for football in England to say maybe we've got this wrong maybe now is an opportunity for us to revisit how we run football in this moment of global crisis to say 
Actually, the fan ownership model that they have in Germany looks pretty good, and we're going to institute that. It's going to be difficult, it's going to be uh, a bit of a legal minefield, but we're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. There's no one, no one is coming forward and saying, uh, now's the time for us to seize the football clubs and return them to the people. Uh, no, because, I mean, legally it, it would be very difficult to remove what the law considers private property from someone. That's, that's obviously not easy to do, but ultimately the law can do anything if Parliament votes for it. So it probably is possible in theory, but I very much doubt there's a will because, <clears throat> I mean, partly there's lots of other stuff going on, but also if they don't do it, no one will do anything. No one will not vote for a particular party because they don't hand the football clubs back to the people. But of course, the football clubs morally always, the ownership resides with the people to begin with. The problem is that it's a bit like what's going on in a way with tech, where tech is developing faster than legislation is able to, to keep up with it. Although, again, because there's so much money involved, there's not a massive will to legislate there either. And I think the same happened with football, is that people realised how much money there was to be made in English football before the authorities did, and the authorities didn't really care anyway. So, for example, like I guess to choose an example at random, uh, Roman Abramovich buying Chelsea. At that point, I guess it was sort of in the very early days of the internet, particularly. So no one was really sure who Abramovich was, or at least the tools to find out who Abramovich was and the information as to who Abramovich was was not available to everyone, and not everyone cared that much. It was just, this billionaire's buying Chelsea, and now they're going to buy everything. I don't think, and I can only talk for myself, I mean, I, I wasn't asking the same questions about Abramovich that I'd be asking now, because uh, I wasn't used to it. I didn't have the information available. I wasn't... I've educated myself, I guess, since then. However, the people making the decision should even at that point back in 2003 have said, who is this man and why does he want to buy Chelsea? And the story that we were told, I mean, it sounds quite funny now, that he was captivated and charmed by United's game against Real Madrid that finished 4-3 where Ronaldo scored a hat-trick. That game, he was so captivated by that that he felt he had to go and spaff some millions on a football club I mean it sounds absolutely ludicrous now and it should have sounded ludicrous then to the people that were in charge but it didn't and that was kind of that was kind of the moment where people began to realise that actually owning football clubs had political capital as well and we don't even to this day know necessarily why Abramovich bought Chelsea we've seen I've seen it I've seen articles written suggesting that no one knew who Roman Abramovich was before that. And the friends of Vladimir Putin were developing a habit of meeting unusual ends. So once Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea, everyone in the world, well, everyone in the world, but lots of people in the world knew who he was. So suddenly, if someone that owns this English institution disappears and he's in London at the time, then actually that's, quite, that's much harder to do than when he's just some faceless billionaire. That'd be one thing. The other, the other reason I've seen advance, particularly in recent days, is that it was part of a plot. And Putin wanted, Vladimir Putin wanted Roman Bramovich to buy Chelsea as part of what's going on with the, um, the insertion of um, Russian oligarch capital, particularly into the city of London, but generally around the world. So that all these things are webbed up in each other. And you see that it's much harder to sanction when Russian money is so bound up in the government and particularly the Tory party. Um, so yeah, that is a very long answer to say that yes, football clubs should be owned by the fans. 
But we've got a situation now where they're owned by people who, with whom one would not necessarily want to go for a pint. Yeah, we should point out uh, that Abramovich has obviously denied that this is part of uh, a request from the Kremlin to to get involved in that. But you can see how people are making the leap that um, the uh, integration of Russian money with the political system in England is exactly having that impact of slowing down the sanctions, in particular um, against those billionaires. Now, it is interesting when you talk about... um, uh, the ability legally to, to seize the club. Yesterday, Germany decided they were going to take Alistair Usmanov's super yacht. It's worth 600 million. Obviously, Chelsea's worth a significant amount more. But in legal terms, the boat, the club, their assets, there's, there's, there's definitely a mechanism there. They're seizing assets or they're freezing assets. Really, Chelsea should be frozen as an asset and Roman Abramovich shouldn't be able to write off the debt for the public acclaim that is going to come. You know, I, I want one last tour of Stamford Bridge. That's going to be a, an amazing moment for him where the crowd is like, ah, oh, you gave us 1.6 billion of your own cash to allow us to have no, the, no, the decade and a half of success. Like, that's, that's going to happen. That's, that's, not, stop you. that's not strictly true, I don't think, in that, I mean, whether, I mean, irrespective of whether you say the cash that Abramovich has is strictly speaking his... I mean, Forbes magazine called what he did something like the largest corporate heist in history. So, so there's that, but there's also the fact that the purchase price that Abramovich has, said it, has put Chelsea for sale at will include every penny he's put in, he's going to get back. So he has sort of put money into Chelsea, and I totally understand but why Chelsea fans... Sure, but that's not what he's saying. And what I'm saying is he's getting the PR hit from this. And he's getting the PR hit from this because they haven't frozen his assets. What they should have done is they should have stepped in and frozen his assets. And then that that nice email that he wrote to the Chelsea fans, a love letter to the Chelsea fans, which he's going to get reciprocated by them. Like, they're, they're, I've, I'm already seeing the Chelsea, oh, whatever whatever you say or whatever you think about him, he changed the, the history of our club and delivered untold success, like unparalleled success for Chelsea. And this is it, isn't it? It doesn't matter what you do as long as my football club gets to dance around with some silver pots every now and again or more often than that and that's that very shows us very specifically how people feel towards their football clubs there's nothing like it and it took the only thing that's surprising is how long it took a panoply of terrible people to realize that the best way of communicating <clears throat> with the widest possible number of people across borders across classes across races across religions across sexes across sexualities was football. There is no single thing in the world that is able to contact as many people as football, and most particularly English football. If you think about even music, for example, this enormously wide, diverse, popular thing, it can be quite region-specific. In particular countries, they like particular kinds of music, they like local music. If you go to any country in the world, you might hear some American music or some English music but you will generally hear local music more than anything else. However, if you go to any country in the world, you will see European football and particularly English football are all over the place. And there are no barriers. You couldn't say, well, the only people that like it are this. So there's no religious, there's no religious reason not to like football. There's no, it's not something that only men like, or only women like. It's not, it's, it's this one thing and there is nothing like it. I'll say it again. There is nothing like it 
in terms of crossing borders and being allowing allowing you to be able to speak to people, to tell people things, to make their minds up, to control them in some ways. And for the same reason, that is why Roman Abramovich's name was getting sung last night. You would hope that at some point there would be a reckoning for Chelsea fans. It doesn't have to happen in public where they're not going to give back all the joy that they've experienced since Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea, but where there is at least some reflection as to the provenance of that joy and the provenance of that wealth and the provenance of that success. Because bad stuff has happened for that success to happen. And your football team winning things is, I mean, it's important. I, I say it's someone, some of the greatest days of my life have been spent watching Manchester United win things, not win things, lose finals, whatever. The whole experience of all of that have been some of the greatest times of my life. But it doesn't mean that I abandon every other sense of morality that exists in my world in order to enjoy the success of a particular football team. And however much our football team is bound up in our identity, what should be bound up in our identity even more profoundly is our sense of right and wrong. And there are owners of football clubs in England and across the world whose very existence in football, whose very existence as powers in our world, should massively infringe our sense, our personal individual sense and our communal sense of right and wrong. And, and there's no getting away from that. And I agree with you. I, I agree with everything you said. I guess my case is that what's happening here is an opportunity for everybody to realise that um, it has reached epidemic proportions what's going on with Newcastle what's going on with Manchester City what's going on at various other stages but almost all of the, the the big clubs have had somebody injecting money or taking money out who you're kind of going uh, is there not now an opportunity for a grassroots movement like there was that killed the European Super League to say we need to revisit the whole notion of fan ownership and let's start with Chelsea but let's move through this let's just move through football like I, I would love that to happen. And I think one of the problems, the reason why the European Super League protest works is I think partly there was a very clear, very fixed target and it was the threat was imminent. It was right there. If you don't act right this second, your game is gone. So people did it. I also think that there was a banner to unite behind. I, when that, those two days happened, I was actually, I was on the Guardian blog at that, that, that time. So all day I was basically doing, it felt like a funeral. I felt, and then at the end of the day, where I just felt exhausted and spent, I remember Monday Night Football was on, and I watched Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher. And after I watched them, like the righteous indignation, and it just felt like there was a movement. And it, without their contribution of those two, it may have happened because there was enough anger and it was ridiculous enough and badly planned enough. But it felt like those two became the leaders of the resistance who are able to unite everyone. And one of the problems we've had long had in English football is that the rivalries are too intense to enable fans to band together to fight against the common enemy. Because the common enemy really is a Manchester United fan. It isn't Liverpool and Manchester City really at this point. It's the Premier League. It's FIFA. It's UEFA. It's the government. That is the common enemy of football fans. I mean, that's the common enemy of a lot of just people but those that is a common enemy of football fans and in Germany they've always been really good at this they made sure for example that free to air highlights would be available at a sensible hour because they protested the 50 plus one rule you the the sponsorship deals you get them because fans 
when they band together, are a huge body. When it's just Man United fans singing Die Die Glazer, that might work in a very short term, but it's not going to persuade any government to sit up and take notice because they're not, there's not, it's not possible to cause enough aggravation and it doesn't represent enough voters. But I agree with what you say, that it is absolutely time. It's long since time. But what it will take... I'm, I'm now thinking more about practicalities. What will it take for that to happen? And it will take associations of supporters group, particularly of the big clubs, and particularly of the clubs who have the most dreadful owners. But don't imagine Newcastle fans will want to be part of that. Don't imagine Manchester City fans will be part of that either. They don't want to kick out their owners because their owners are making things very nice for them. And although they're making things not quite as nice for people who are discriminated, persecuted against and enslaved in their countries, murdered in their countries, they are bringing better football to the Etihad and St. James's Park. And people feel quite attached to that. And I say it in that kind of way because, I, I mean, like I'm taking the piss because I am taking the piss, but I also understand very profoundly how pleasurable it is to watch that as a, to watch good football to go to a football ground every other Saturday or every Saturday go away every other Saturday and know you're going to be entertained know it's going to be a buzz I, I, I understand this more profoundly than my wife would like me to I get it but it's the problem is that most people ultimately do not care about this and the clubs who are afflicted with the worst owners City are currently afflicted with the most success and those two things are connected and bringing about that change there is no will for change in a lot of places and that is a massive problem whereas the Super League everyone hated that everyone was everyone was opposed to that there was a banner behind which to unite powerful figures supported it and that's what happened but yeah, yeah but changing owners not so much Theoretically then if there was a better version of a Super League, a, a less kind of uh, f- formatically bad version of the Super League, if that came along and existed, do you then think it would be met with the same set of uproar? Like, for example, if the Super League existed and it was unquestionable that the fortunes of Arsenal or Tottenham would benefit from being in a Super League, which you could possibly argue the original thing was, do you then think that there would be the same level of uproar or do you think that they would fall in line just like Newcastle United fans have fallen in line uh, and, and Manchester City fans have? Um, it depends, I think, because the thing with the Super League, it was the actual process of watching your team every week in a closed shop is not better. Because and no club could go into a Super League and say, well, we're definitely going to win this every year. So, because the other teams are just as rich as you are, if not richer. So, I don't think it's quite as simple as that. And the Super League basically messes with the, the real, like, the fibre of football that suddenly you're not playing the clubs that you've spent the last 120 years hating and building rivalries with. At that point, it just exists as a TV thing in order to make money for people. And then it ceases to become a local issue, which is sport. And the localism in sport, I think, is more powerful than the internationalism. Beating the people that live on your doorstep is more attractive than beating people who live in other parts of the continent. That's a treat. So... We see it. We saw it with the Champions League. At the turn of the century, they moved the Champions League to... They made two groups. Ultimately, because they wanted more TV dates, fixtures. And it didn't work because it was just too much. It was overkill. And I think that's one of the problems with the Super League is that aside from all the other reasons with the Super League, if you look at it just purely as a sporting endeavour, 
it didn't tick enough of the boxes that you would like a sporting endeavour to. There was no jeopardy because there was no promotion and relegation. You was playing the same sides over and over again. And they're not the sides that you have a massive relationship with and you're not going to go to every away game because they're all over the, they're all over Europe. And it's that combination of things as a sporting feature made it, made it not work. And if the Super League was something different, so the Premier League, I mean, as a sporting endeavour, the Premier League was structured to make money, obviously. But as a sporting endeavour, it worked. Just lob off a couple of the teams, so there's a bit less football. But otherwise, it's the best teams in England playing against each other with jeopardy because there is promotion and relegation. The league's quite still quite big, still enough teams in it to make it sensible. And that works as a sporting endeavour, so that enables people to get behind it. Whereas the Super League, it doesn't speak to people's souls in the same way. Whereas the Premier League, it's much easier to hold your nose because ultimately, you're getting to see your team go around the country and compete against other people from around the country. And it has that atmosphere in the country of the football's on. Yeah. And you wouldn't have that with any kind of pan-national, supranational warfare. See, see, I'm just like sceptical of the idea that like football sort of found its soul that week during the Super League. I, I think that what you say there, the, the format was just bad, the competition was bad, was the main reason for that, rather than football finding itself and, for something that, and that being something that we can cling to now in this sort of moment. Um, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, and it definitely it gets to a point where enough people care about something, then the government are obviously going to weaponize it for for gain. Or somebody somebody could weaponize it against the government. That's what I'm like. I'm astounded that nobody has looked at what happened with the Super League, is looking what's gone on with Abramovich, and come forward and said, uh, "Now's our time. I'm going to rally everybody who's a football fan and say, get behind us. Here's the plan. This is how it's going to look. I realize there's legal loopholes, but actually, you know what?" All the great ideas are considered completely batshit crazy until they're achieved and everybody goes, oh, why didn't we do this years ago? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, it, absolutely, it absolutely can be done. You would require, yeah, as, you, as we said, the political pressure and the political pressure that creates the political will. There's not going to be political will from Boris Johnson to take on Abu Dhabi at this point. It, there would have to be a very obvious, very significant gain for him to do that. Because as we saw with um, City's case with UEFA, um, they, will, they, will, they will lawyer it into oblivion. And no government wants to really get involved in that or face the prospect particularly of getting beaten by a sovereign state in court. And arranging, and the, that, arranging for that to happen would require a lot, of, a, a lot of political will, whereas the Super League... Because, I mean, I think it was Miguel Delaney's story where the government were involved in the first instance yeah. in, in getting the Super League to where it got to. They were backing it. It was only when they realised the extent of the uproar that they decided, actually, this is something we better oppose because that's that this particular, also, this particular Tory government are not just as cruel as the Tory governments of my childhood, but the Tory governments of my childhood, they were obviously very easy to dislike. Um but the people within them actually had some intellectual heft. They had some gravitas. They represented something. You might not have liked Margaret Thatcher, but believe you knew what Margaret Thatcher and her acolytes stood for. Current Tory government is very different. Uh, Boris Johnson wrote two articles about, and this is just the example of Brexit, pro-Brexit and anti-Brexit, before deciding what he was going to do. This trust changes her mind more often than she changes her clothes. And the difficulty with these particular set of ministers is that they don't stand for anything beyond their own power. 
because they keep changing what they think depending on the blowing of the wind. Yeah. So it's very difficult to pin them down on anything. And because, because of that, there'll never be a principle that they will fight for unless just on account of the fact that it is a principle. Yeah. There will have to, be a, there have to be a net political gain for them. And with all that's going on at the moment, although you might think that sorting out the football would be... I- Think it was. <laughs> some people, if you, you, know? if you took Manchester United off the Glazers, you would definitely please many, many people. But then you've got to think, well, how many of those people are going to vote for the Tory party? Not, not that many, because United's in Manchester. And there aren't very many Manchester seats. There aren't very many Tory seats in Manchester, in Manchester City Centre. There aren't yeah. any. No, okay, fair enough. Um, I, uh, I'm, it is depressing and uh, there's an existential uh, crisis hanging over the world at the moment and we're, we do uh, probably need the diversion of the games at the weekend to take our mind off things in that context. Uh, uh, but that's it, isn't it? Like, that, that, that's exactly it. There is nothing like football. Football is the greatest diversion, misdirection, masking agent that there is. If, I don't know, if religion was the opium of the masses, football is the ecstasy of the masses. Mm. Florida versus Abu Dhabi I cannot wait uh, Sunday afternoon Oh It's uh, it's the feel good story Of the spring Uh, What's going to happen? Pick that segue out Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, It is I don't know Um, It's a weird thing Because United's results Recently Have obviously been rubbish They've been dreadful But United's performances Have been good um, again, like they panicked in the last 15 minutes. I mean, only Watford, obviously, but they panicked in the last 15 minutes where they didn't get a goal. But prior to then, they played fast, incisive attacking football as they had done against Borough, as they had done for a half against Burnley and couldn't score. I think it's got to the point for Ralph Rangnick where if Ronaldo was any other player, he'd have been dropped quite a few weeks ago. He's not playing well. And the thing that you really, I didn't expect him to expect to go is the finishing. And the finishing's gone. So even, because with Ronaldo, you might think, well, you just tell him to play within the width of the posts. Like, there's enough going on around him now. United are playing well enough. For the first time in years and years, they're creating loads of chances and they're not conceding that many chances. Now, it's fair to note also that they've had a pretty good run of opponents here. But I think one of the things that will determine what happens in this game is really not that much to do with football at all, and it's in the minds. Because the way that United played in the first half against Atletico, Atletico aren't a particularly good team. They're not informed. Far enough, they scored an unbelievable goal. But it was a collective bottle job of intensely tamed proportions from United in that first half against Atletico, where they couldn't respond to just a little bit of pressure and a little bit of effort on the part of the other team. Without 20 minutes to go, United realised, hang on a sec, if we put in effort here, we're good enough to win. Now, if they do that against City, the game will be over. And City are a better, more intimidating side to play against than Atletico. Atletico just ran around a lot, put United under a bit of pressure at the back. City won't do that. City will win the ball high up the pitch and you'll struggle to get it back until there's been an attempt on goal. And if United have that collective bottle job again, they'll get absolutely whacked. And it won't matter when they suddenly decide that actually they don't mind participating in a physical, mental contest because the game will be over. So obviously the most likely result is City win by two or three goals, uh, easing up. But if United play as well as they played in the last few weeks at their best, then 
it will be a game. Is the Spurs performance and the template that they had to beat City, it's not immediately copyable, but there's certainly elements of it that Manchester United have that they can do to Manchester City and no reason to suspect that Manchester City will learn from that because that's not that hasn't been the, the habit. They've tended to continue doing the same thing but just trying to do it better. Um, yeah, that City, if you can get the ball into good areas, City give you chances and the reason why Pep Guardiola has only won the Champions League with the greatest, with the greatest midfield of all time and probably the greatest player of all time is because, what, to me, the main reason is because of the way that he plays... When it works, it's the hardest style of football to beat because you have so little of the ball and you're under pressure the whole time. But in order to play that way, uh, City have defenders whose primary attribute is their ability as footballers, really, rather than their ability as defenders. So with, with Barcelona, he was able to get away with it because the midfield was so good and the retention of the ball was so good. And in emergencies, they also had Messi. And... Whereas with Bayern and City, he's not quite had that. And so there is, they will always give you a chance. I mean, whichever centre-back he plays, Laporte isn't quick, Stones isn't quick or strong, doesn't always concentrate that well, Cancelo's always trying to go forward. So there will, there will always be a chance to score, as Spurs found. And as United beat City on this weekend, actually, last year, last season, quite comfortably. They beat them 2-0 at the Etihad. They beat them quite comfortably. And they beat them at the Etihad the season before as well. Um, again, like not comfortably, but dominated them in the first half without having the most more of the possession, but dominated the first half against them and took the game away. So United absolutely have the players to cause City trouble. The problem that they're finding at the moment is they can't score. And it probably has got to the point where Ronaldo... I mean, it got to the point weeks ago where Ronaldo has to be dropped. What I actually mean is it's got to the point where Rangnick almost doesn't have a choice but to drop him. But if you drop Ronaldo, there will just be fuss and aggravation that you don't want. But if you drop Ronaldo for the derby, particularly when you don't have a lot of options, I mean, really, if you're not able to leave Ronaldo out, what do they do? Marcus Rashford's playing dreadfully as well. So you either go 3-5-2 and you play Elanga up front um, with Sancho, or you've basically got to play Bruno Fernandes as a false nine. So that's a both of those are tactical changes away from the formation that's kind of working, even though the results aren't working. So United absolutely have the players to cause City problems, um, but City are obviously a much better team who are playing better. So you would expect them to win. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair assessment, Daniel. Great to have you with us this morning. Thanks. Cheers, lads. Have a good day, everyone. It's Daniel Harris giving us some thoughts on uh, you know uh, the geopolitical situation and. My batch of crazy idea about uh, seizing the means of production. Just do it. Yeah. Just get it done. The Germans did it. They just decided you can't have that anymore. We're taking it. Yoink. It's there gonna it be wasn't a- hard. No. There's not like, oh, I'm going to take you to court. About yeah, take me to court. Grant. Like, take me to court. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Yeah. Should have parked your yacht somewhere else. Particularly in England now that they don't have to worry about the European Court of Justice and all that crap anymore. They're like, no. Nah. European law, no jurisdiction. No jurisdiction. Mm. Where is your jurisdiction? It's 8.39. Uh, give out, as you are wont to do, uh, at Off The Ball AM, or you can uh, leave a comment in the YouTube stream for our craziness. Or, of course, you can uh, text the show 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. At 8.39 this morning, a reminder, OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. John Duggan is with us. John, good morning to you. Jaron Owen, how are we doing? Uh, pretty good. It's, um, you know, we're... 
I mean, the, this this definitely reminds me of uh, growing up in the eighties, where the existential fear of nuclear war was kind of ever present in all of the, the Star Wars, yeah, Reagan Star Wars, all of the content that you consumed and all of the news was kind of fairly, ah, oh, the those pesky Ruskies, they're going to drop the bomb any day. And I was like, would that land on us? Is that is that are we in the what would happen? The prevailing winds aren't great. I used to get mixed up between the Star Wars that I loved, the little figurines that I collected, and the Star Wars that Reagan was doing, where he was building these. Uh, Space, what was he doing? Space shields. What was he doing? He was, he was to, spending he was, loads of money he was for the, the Soviets. Exactly. What he was doing. Uh, maybe maybe that was uh, maybe that was their plan. It was like give all this money to uh, rich defense contractors, and that's going to make the Russians broke. Well, that's and, what's the Republicans in America, I think, are happy about um, the fact that you know there's going to be a huge defense boom out of this. Um, in my humble opinion. Uh, but yeah, like I was even listening to Donald Fagan the other day and uh, like the night fly and uh, talking about the Reds pushing the button down, the Cuban Missile Crisis and all that kind of thing in the early 60s. You're the early 60s, you're the 80s and now you have now in the 2022. So yeah, I remember I remember being a, kind of afraid of, of, of all that Yeah, when I was growing up when I was six or seven years of age. Yeah, to start terrorized. With. What's, what's, what's going to happen now? And um, all the bellicose language from both Reagan and uh, the Russians and, and Sting and the song Russians and all that kind of thing. So, it, yeah, we've always had it, I suppose. We, we've lived in, in 30 years, 9-11 aside, we've lived in a, quite a peaceful time until now. So, yeah. What? <laughs> Did you, like, fall off into a reverie there? You're looking, for, me, you're, you're looking for my input on my memories of 1980s nuclear paranoia, is that it? no. Like, I mean, like, just an updated you, version you, of you well, like, I mean, you're, you're spot on there. I mean, I've had a very uh, in, innocent life. I, I think my, my only sort of half memory was as a was as a child growing up in England, being explained to what was going on uh, in Kosovo and uh, what Tony Blair was was doing. And uh, this is what uh, this is the situation here. I think I can remember. I think it was my mom explaining to me my little soldiers or something, and I was like, "You're playing with military uh, equipment in the house here. Here's what's really going on in the world, son." And uh, at that moment, my childhood was over. Your, co- your probably was your four. biggest conflict was at the Arsenal Reading game. Yes, let's not mention that. Uh, so, what's going on news-wise? Well, uh, breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you want to talk about it? Well, what's this? I don't know anything about this. Are we allowed to? I don't know. I'm always. I think you've spoken about it before. Maybe Jar wasn't here. Oh, the Arsenal, oh, the Arsenal Reading thing. Oh, that was just just sitting in the away fans and got uh, accosted by uh, an elderly lady for sitting sitting in with the away fans, which was um, which was always a nice feeling, you know. You were an Arsenal fan in the middle of the Reading fans, yeah. All right, and then yeah. Beca- all right. yeah, I was trying to keep the celebrations to myself, but she was having none of it. Yeah. Who the FNL do you think you are? That sort of thing. Yeah. Celebrating two fingers in our face. Get out! Get out of here! And did Arsenal win easy? No, they won after extra time. All oh, right, with cup. It's cup. Oh, okay. Mm, Alexis Sanchez with a goal at the Medeski. No, Wembley semi final. All oh, right. So you weren't young if Alexis Sanchez scoring the goal. No, I wasn't. This was only like a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, it's... I thought this was a tale of your childhood. No, that was you for life. That was, that was a... so you were just being a troll, basically. Just, just, I was just you, you were actually celebrating. You're, you're no, I wasn't. I was a little bit of a, and then it's like, okay, just gotta shut up here. Yeah, she would have battered you. In fairness, she absolutely would have battered me. There's no question about that. So it was, it was for my own safety. 
Okay, John. Okay, uh, we've got breaking news. 71 Russian athletes, 12 from Belarus, are banned from the Winter Paralympics. The opening ceremony in Beijing tomorrow, the Games begin properly on Saturday. So athletes in both countries had in recent days been granted a neutral status, but there's been a revolt against that by other countries saying that they will not compete if this happens. So the IPC, the International Paralympic Committee, have done that U-turn. They say the rapidly escalating situation in Ukraine has put them in an impossible position. Uh, they say for the integrity of the Games, they must make this decision. They've also added in a statement to the para-athletes from the impacted countries. We're truly sorry you're affected by the decisions your governments took last week in breaching the Olympic truce. You are victims of your government's actions. Roman Abramovich, I'm sure you've spoken about it. Um, a few things about it, I suppose, that I kind of gleaned from the papers. Chelsea's last account's 175 million euro debt. That was one thing. Stamford Bridge, the, 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 the complexity of that and actually getting that redeveloped and then the limitations then you have on your... Uh, match day receipts. The other thing, I suppose, is um, obviously he made the statement around Ukraine, uh, but he didn't say anything about Russia. Is he hoping himself to ward off uh, sanctions? And also, is the club, I don't think there'll be any like a lack of bars to the club, but is it going to be another Glazer situation where you have um, a half a billion debt uh, put onto the back of Chelsea? And more importantly, I suppose, the bigger question is they've got to rein in the way these football clubs are just being... Um, you know, sold to anybody in the Wild West situation. It's, it's, it never has money been so in the spotlight negatively, I don't think, in sport in the last week or two. Yeah, and uh, look, I'm a uh, broken record about it. I think there's an opportunity here for a significant change. I'm not in any way confident it's going to happen. I'm very hopeful that somebody might put their head up and say, well, this isn't right. But uh, speaking of money that isn't right, yeah. the golf world is a flame as far oh. as the golf world can be a flame. It's funny how the, the Phil thing is just, Rory killed it. Like, Rory is now ultimately the godfather. Whatever about this money that we're about to talk about, Rory was like, Phil, you're going to have a public flogging and then, okay, the public flogging is over. He just announced it was finished. Well, mm. well Rory came off the top rope like a wrestler on Phil two weeks ago because Rory's been big behind the PGA Tour, and rightly so. And he, Rory, in a, in a big way, killed the Saudi thing the way he took Phil apart. And then the quotes from yesterday at the Bay Hill press conference, uh, it's almost like he's put an arm around Mickelson's shoulder. He's uh, a benevolent dictator. That's what... <laughs> <laughs> it is unfortunate. I think Phil has been a wonderful ambassador for the game of golf, still is a wonderful ambassador for the game of golf. It's unfortunate. A few comments that he thought were making out of confidence are off the record out there and were not used against him, but this whole situation is unfortunate. Look, Phil will be back. I think the players want to see him back. He's done such a wonderful job for the game of golf. He's represented the game of golf very, very well. It's quite the turnaround, isn't it? The entirety of his career. It's like, like After a like, couple of weeks of thinking about it, he's not changed look, we his all mind. Make mis- we all make mistakes. We say things we want to take back. No one's different in that regard, but we should be allowed to make mistakes. And we should be allowed to ask for forgiveness and for people to forgive us and move on. Hopefully he comes back at some stage, and he will, and people will welcome him back and glad that he's back. Um, Rory is the third most popular golfer in this pip thing which like Rory apart from Tiger and Phil is the most popular golfer out there and that, that pip that horrendous thing I hate it I hate it that, that player impact program which effectively is a way of saying for the PGA Tour we're going to give you extra money lads so you don't go to Saudis yeah and uh, Phil Phil uh, before Christmas had tweeted he'd won it yeah like 29th of December he seemed to re- reveal that he had he had won this thing and that was when obviously the 2021 competition was due to end I'm sorry we should say this thing is money this thing is what it is, is it's, free money it's a competition for money clicks for influence uh, who is the biggest golf influencer amongst the, the tour pros not the most successful 
Um, who is the biggest influencer? It's a way of like transferring money from the PGA Tour to the most popular golfers to buy their silence and to stop them from joining up with Saudi Arabia. And it's not even it's not even influence. Like one of the uh, pieces of criteria is Google searches. How many times a player's name is searched for? Players will only receive credit for searches related to them. So Adam Scott won't benefit simply from having the same name as the actor. That's the Golf Digest reference last year. Tiger Woods was in a car crash last year. What do you think that's going to do to his PIP score? It's going to send it through the bloody roof. Eight, so mil- eight million dollars he got out of it. What are you going to do? I mean, if you're like if you're a golfer, you I, I don't well, know. But Tiger Woods will be. But Tiger Woods, because you Tiger Woods well, every year will be. I would say that yeah. I I, w- I didn't I wouldn't have been in the mood for searching Tiger Woods overly last year, and then Tiger Woods was at that store, so I googled Tiger Woods oh, to see is Tiger is Tiger Woods. Give him money, or it's your fault. And like so, that this is why he's he's won this thing. Like I'm sure he's he's still relatively popular. Uh, if anything, the Saudi Arabia thing should have actually increased. What about Brooks Phil and Bryson? They must be so disappointed. I mean, they're going to have they, to try and find. Where did something. they finish? Where did, no, Rory came third, Phil came second, and uh, Tiger came first. I'll check because I, I was moaning about it yesterday. So. Nine million for uh, Bryson Tiger. finished fifth and Brooks eighth. Wow, okay. So Bryson Brooks got three and a half million and Brooks got three million. And who finished fourth, do you know? Uh, Jordan Spieth. Wow. Once again, at a quiet year last year. But it just to me, it's like these are all the most popular guys in the game are the people who have ended up at the top. So I don't think actually what you do... Like Patrick Cantlay, I think, is possibly the best golfer in the world at the moment, and he was way down the list, which is good because he'd be under the radar. You can throw a blanket over a lot of those lads in terms of like who the hell they are. Like uh, a couple of the other things, like there, there is a Q score here, a decades-old measure of person's familiarity and appeal is what they're taking into it. Uh, how often a player is featured on the television broadcast is one. So I guess that maybe feeds into golf a little bit. I mean, <laughs> the golf is on television. Uh, like, <laughs> that's. Uh, I mean, that it, it's. Uh, can we get an OTB pip? You you can't <laughs> you can't the the TV broadcasting dictates the popularity and then you can't say how often you're featured given you it's like that sets the rules mm. you're screwed if you, unless you're on the TV broadcast and you can't win this thing unless you're on the TV broadcast and so therefore it's just like and then you win this thing you're going to be on the TV broadcast more it's, this imagine, is, like, imagine if they had Pip in like 2009 like the most miserable year of Tiger Woods' life and it's like congratulations you've been on the news an awful lot this year and they come with this massive check <laughs> as he's like hovering <laughs> over his disheveled reputation trying to like come uh, back to some sort of uh, life and he's like thank you for uh, 8 million dollars it might have spiced up the uh, extracurricular activities of all the other golfers it's like a, just, just, just a, man, a man comes from the side in his, as he's apologising in his oversized suit just being like by the way just while you're crying there here is a massive check quick picture he the suits are always oversized left. aren't they they're, they always they're, are they're always oversized golf is a great sport All right. I, oh, golf is Hollywood I love watching golf as we all know every Sunday night I think it's one of the best entertainment spectacles out there in sport but this is just so, such a sour taste in my mouth it's money for nothing as as uh, Mark Knopfler would say, how did, how did Phil lose it? What happened? What happened? I mean, Tiger Woods. Tiger, <laughs> Tiger Woods gets this every year because Tiger Woods. But hang on, he, a U-turn. Like I mean, he's you're making the point that actually he was told he won it. He, he was clearly told that he won it, and then uh, as you can see, Tiger quote tweeted Phil from last year. Phil was like, "I'd like to thank all the crazies and real supporters for helping me win the PIP to get the second half of the money I have to add an event I haven't played in a while." See you in Kapalua. P.S. I'll try find another hot controversial topic soon, which is a fairly prophetic tweet from Phil Mickelson at the end of last year, and then Tiger Woods quote tweeted. Yesterday being like, whoops. What, like, I mean, clearly the Saudi thing did dent Phil Mickelson's appeal here. Like, they've done a U turn on handing this thing to him. Uh, 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 the second half of the money, so obviously it wasn't all in, right? Like, is there is there a world where this is all just good for everybody? Is there a world where, like, here, listen, you, you, I'm going to, because he did the interview, it was last, last November, didn't he? 
It was, it was before the end of the year, yeah. He did it with Shipnook in November, mm. tweets that, uh, something hot and controversial. Like, it would be, he obviously knows he said something. Your man's book is going to sell loads. The Saudi tour gets blown up, which they didn't want to go to anyway, because they're crazy MRF-ers. Well, inside agents. Well, I'm just saying, is there a world where they've just decided, uh, well, I, there's, I, there's 19 million on the table here, why don't we just share it out a bit? sponsors, so, I mean, how much has he lost from all those Has sponsors? he lost the sponsors? Roy's just got everybody back. Yeah. Roy's just got everybody back. And this like, sounds next like week. Scooby-Doo. That's, they're all going to take off masks. And, and uh, you know, Mickelson at the end. Yeah. I, I knew it, was all, it wasn't for you pesky kids. I really hope Shipnock got a nice wedge out I, of this. I, I've, I've never, it's going to sell. I've never looked forward to a book more than that apart from my own. The book really? is just going to sell. It's popularity. It doesn't, you don't need... It doesn't, have you read Bud, Sweat and Tees, his other book? No. no. It's, get it. It's about Rich Beam um, and the Wild Nights and the PGA Tour. Rich Beam who was selling mobile phones, won a tournament of the PGA Tour with a guy called Steve Duplantis. They were absolute party animals. And then Rich Beam would end up winning a major three years later. So it's, it was a roll I can read. I just can't wait for this Phil book. Because Phil is one of the biggest stars, you know. All right, we've got to go. JD, right. thanks very much for that. More from John, of course, on Virtual Insanity. You can get that uh, otbsports.com forward slash Virtual Insanity or you can hear him on Saturday afternoon live between 1 and 5 on Off the Ball on News Talk. A reminder, OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. It's time for the hurling power rankings. Some of these critics, these pundits. I absolutely adore them lads. I have unbelievable time from, but they're a great bunch, but it's not acceptable. I'd like to play the hard man when, when they're on it. It's not very pleasant when you're trying to manage a team. All you're looking for is a bit of civility and a bit of decency, but they just dismiss you like, like you, you know, you have nothing to do with the bloody occasion. All right, well, good morning to you. Morning. We've got new leaders, lads. Oh, dun, 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 dun. I like it. Go on. Mm. Is it Wexford? Is it Cork? That is the real question. I can't it? be Cork. It is Cork. What? Yeah. Hey, look at what Cork did last week. Ah, they went on. to Limerick and one swallow does not a summer make. Hey, they're sitting top of Division where One. Where were they? Where were they before you last week? Uh, I think they were in third place, and now we've put them up, bumped them up to first. Okay, so that's okay. A bit we, the we, the Limerick have dropped down a little bit. We've done this in. Uh, Reverse, Reverse order, order, unfortunately. Yeah, do, you, do you want to go through the other ones? Yeah, yeah, go, to go, let's That's stick the, to the plan. Yeah, that's a little tease for people when we get it further. How far down are Limerick? Uh, James Gell put Limerick in eighth place, which I just can't stand over at this point. Uh, he was called dramatic for doing that by Paul Murphy on the hurling pod. I think Paul and I have been a little bit more kind of conservative about where we're putting Limerick, but no doubt you've got to respect the fact the first three games they've lost and they've now lost top spot in the power rankings. But is, it, is the hurling we'll pod, Will, just a, a, a method for you to like run your power rankings ideas off to legendary hurlers? Is that just the sole purpose of, of that podcast? But I did joke this week home. I said, you can do my homework for me. What we'll do is I'll read out the results. You guys scribble down your power rankings and I'll just steal some of the homework for the top eight and we'll go from there. No, uh, my power rankings are actually still quite different to theirs. Like, Scales are far more volatile than mine. Like, a team will lose and Scale will more than happily bump them down to seventh or eighth. That's what they should be. If, if they're week by week, I, I actually think that's exactly what they should be. Can I just say, Will, you know, uh, for, for our radio listeners at home, Owen is shifting very uncomfortably at the moment. Uh, He's he's unhappy with this. He thinks that you are um, getting better information. Mm-hmm. You've got a, a broader sweep. It, 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 I think you're coming for his turf, and he is very concerned well, about it. No, what I'm really worried about here is Tommy Rooney. Actually, he's like looking at what's going on here, and he's saying, "I can can I copy and paste this sort of democratic setup and just oust." the uh, single dictator of the football power rankings I think that's what uh, Tommy's thinking so you've, you've given him ideas of, of a more hopeful future Will and I'm not happy about that 
Oh, there you go. He can, he can pass the homework on to you and you can feed them into your power rankings as well. But look, the lads are only kind of doing the top eight or so. I'm the person who has to go and work out 24 all the way through. All of the counties. The so eventually so you remember that there were other counties. Good, yeah. yeah. 24 counties. Well I did. And, right, so right. Only took, it only took a month, but that's okay. It only took a few weeks. Even, but here, even the Brits would be happy with a 24 county outcome, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, the good news is we kind of decried what was happening with Ulster Hurling, I think, on the first couple of power rankings that we're discussing. And the thing is, on this first quadrant we're going to talk about, where we look at the 24 teams up through to 17, two Ulster teams and two neighbours in the Northwest have flown up the power rankings over the first few weeks. Uh, Donegal, firstly, are the big movers within this quadrant for the first three games. They're up to 20th place. In Division 2B, they've won all of their games so far. Three wins from three up there in second place, just behind their neighbours Derry on scoring difference. And Derry have gone up to 17th, ahead of Kildare and Meath, who are both in Division 2A, because of the way that Derry have started this year. So in 24th place, you've got Mayo. A little bit disappointing. They, or sorry, 24th place is Sligo. Got their first win last weekend. But still, it's going to be very difficult to get out of Division 2B. You've got Mayo, who took a heavy defeat against Derry last week. They were beating 424 to 113 on the road. They've got just one point from their first three games. London, just above them. You've got Wicklow, who are currently sitting second bottom in Division 2B. So therefore, Donegal had to go ahead of those three teams up into 20th place. Mead have dropped down to 19th on the back of what was a pretty heavy defeat against their neighbours, West Mead, last weekend in Division 2A, which looks a wide open division. But Mead are now very much in a relegation dogfight. Having won their first game against Kildare, it's been downhill for them since then. Kildare, again, excellent win against Down last weekend, which is a big boost for them. And Kildare go into 18th place. Then into uh, 16 up, we look at Down, who lost out to Kildare, so they sit in 16th place. Carlo suffered a blow in their bid to be promoted from Division 2A by losing out to a Conway-inspired Kerry uh, last weekend. So they go down to, sorry, they sit in 15th place. A dropper had to happen at some point. Offaly have gone down. They faded badly in the last 20 minutes against Clare, who were inspired by Tony Kelly, who came back and scored two goals and 12 points. But Offaly would be really disappointed that they were drawing <laughs> at halftime. We take this for granted. We take this for granted. And and the hammered. thing is that people go, oh, it's only against Offaly, except he does it against everybody. He, he will score the, the 18 points against anybody any day of the week and twice on Sundays if you ask him to. So See, That's the ridiculous thing about it, lads. And I, I know for Clare it's going to be difficult this year to probably close the gap to some of the teams above them, but Tony Kelly is that much of a difference maker that he will come in and when a game is in the melting pot, Tony Kelly will just open up and go into superhuman mode and that's what he does and he, I thought it was going to take him a little bit of time and we'll talk about Rory O'Connor in a moment to ease himself back in from injury because he was only doing some of the running drills after Clare's last game before the break comes in to start I was a little suspicious when I saw the team sheet whether he was going to actually start or not and then he comes in and puts in a huge performance so that's a big boost for Clare in the coming weeks and they play Limerick at home this coming Sunday will they smell a little bit of blood in the water with the way that Limerick have started the year and maybe Clare can get a crucial victory um, which will push them back up a little bit higher towards the top of Division 1A. We shall see this weekend. Uh, then you've got after Offaly, who've dropped down to 14th. I bumped up Kerry on the back of their win away to Carlo. Kerry are now very much in the promotion race in Division 2A on the back of that seven-point victory. Westmead beat Mead. A couple of goals scored by Niall Mitchell during the game. They seem to be moving quite well again after their shock defeat against Carlo in the second round. If they win at home against Down on Sunday, which they'd be expected to do, they'd be very much on course to go to the Division 2A final and they could make a swift 
swift return back to Division 1. Leash lost out to Kilkenny again, faded in that game at Nolan Park against a very youthful-looking Kilkenny team. I think Kilkenny will start to bring a bit more experience back in for their game against Dublin, which is a huge one this weekend. Uh, but Leash have got probably one of the games of the weekend. They're on the TV. We have seen so little of Antrim so far, which has felt really disrespectful because Antrim gave Kilkenny a good rattle, gave Dublin a very good game in Corrigan Park and almost beat Waterford at the weekend, who were up towards the top of these power rankings. And Neil McManus' penalty is tipped over the crossbar with the very last play of the game. That could have been a famous Antrim win. You put your ass on it. Yeah, like I was listening to some of the Antrim players later and it wasn't a case of we've had a moral victory or we've played really well no. on this occasion. It was literally we have left two points behind us here which would have probably kept us guaranteed to be in Division 1 for next season. But they go to Port Leash this weekend. Effectively, it's like a relegation playoff semi-final. Whoever wins that game is not going to be in the relegation playoff against Offaly. So that's a huge game. 3.45 TG Carr this weekend. I think it's a really good TV pick from them when there were other games that may have been tempting on Sunday. They picked a game with huge stakes at the wrong end of the table in Division 1B. So we'll see where both Leash and Antrim are probably at the end of this weekend they sit currently 11th 10th place 9th I've kept Clare there already mentioned Tony Kelly's heroics they're up and running with a win which is probably morale boosting with the way the season has started away to Offaly last week they'll feel they just about got the job done but they'll probably be a bit concerned they left Offaly in the game for as long as they did and they play against uh, their neighbours Limerick this weekend that brings us to the front page then of our uh, top 8 and I've put Kilkenny in 8th place once again they beat Lee which probably would have been the expectation. The feeling is, talking to Paul Murphy about it, that Kilkenny are going about their work very quietly. It looks from what Brian Cody said last weekend that some of the Valley Hale players, but not TJ Reid, will be back for their game at Parnell Park this weekend. You know, Kilkenny win that game, they put themselves in the chance of getting to a league semi-final. But the way that Dublin are going, lads, Dublin are a couple of places above them in the power rankings now in sixth who, with the exception of Jake Morris playing very well for Tipperary, I thought Dublin did an excellent job on Tipperary's forwards. Going back uh, to Semple Stadium, oh, first hang, time since they lost to Cork last year. Hang on. Did we not say that we would put Dublin up if they beat Tip last week? Did we not Did we not agree that Dublin were going to be catapulted forward if they beat Tip? Beat Tip, we'll take you more seriously, we'll put you up, and you're like, you're reneging on your promise to the good people, the good hurling folk of Dublin. <laughs> The, the intention was to put them up, but then what happened was Limerick ended up tumbling a little bit and Galway went down one place. So it wasn't a case of like Dublin have really lost any ground. on Well, the back they haven't gone up well. You didn't do what you said you'd do. The, the, hey, the I, rankings I did, are broken. I didn't think Cork were going to beat Limerick, all right? That, that was the kind of great disruptor in the top five for this week. Um, but like Dublin have done nothing wrong so far this year. They've won the Walsh Cup. They've now beaten Tipperary to put themselves in a very strong position to qualify for the semi-finals. Unbeaten so far. They backed that up against Kilkenny this weekend. I guarantee you I will put them into the top five for next week. That is a guarantee to the Dublin people. And that, like, that's a huge game uh, this weekend too because it's going to say so much about how the final shake-up is going to be in 1B. Then just above them, you've got Galway who go down just the one place on the back of their six-point defeat. A little bit disappointing, the performance on the back of how they were playing before the break that they were then beaten by Wexford, put in a patchy performance. The takeaway from it, though, is how important Conor Whelan is going to be at number 14 for Galway this year because they had to kind of shuffle their forward line around as a result of Whelan not being there. So his physicality, which was so important in the Limerick win, was missing. But also they had to kind of change the personnel and it didn't quite click in the same way when they played against Wexford. Wexford, who are above them, and we'll talk about Wexford in second place in a moment, uh, go to Cork this weekend. So that's a cracking top of the table clash there uh, to see. Or sorry, uh, Galway go to Cork, which is a huge test when they go to the leaders this weekend. You would think that Limerick are going to bounce back, who are in fourth place now when they play against Clare. 
we talked about everything that they have in the bank. I was listening to Tommy Walsh talking to you guys yesterday. There has to be a definite feeling that Limerick are a little bit below even where they were last year, even though they didn't win in the first three games of the league and they turned out perfectly fine. There's been real experimentation there. Maybe the one thing that John Kiley has learned in these first three weekends of the league that we've seen, lads, are maybe some of those fringe players aren't as good as the players that they've come in to replace because he kind of smashed the glass at halftime at the weekend by bringing on three of his key players at halftime. And that, to me, was a sure indication that he was saying, right, I've got to bring my frontliners back out here. And to credit to Limerick, they won the second half against Cork after being pretty appalling and only scoring five points. I never thought we'd get to a point where Limerick would be as low scoring as they are right now. They're only averaging 16 points a game, which would have been unthinkable last year. They're the lowest scorers on average in Division One of the league this year. Uh, yeah, and and look, I, I I understand the concerns, but I, I wouldn't be too concerned about them come championship time. And I think these will be different. But I, I do think that the league form at the moment, I think Scales right about the current league form and this week. If if we all had to play a tournament this weekend with these teams as they're currently constituted, that's different from what will happen over the course of the long, slow, unfolding championship in forty days as it starts, as we know. Um, I definitely would have the dubs higher up at the moment because like Dublin and Waterford drew Waterford are three points three places ahead of them I think you know Galway are going to be inconsistent as they find what they're trying to do under Shefflin and that's fine so it's one week they can be up one week they can be down um, The only caveat to that I would say Ger, is so far and maybe this will change as we go into the amazing we're less than 50 days away from the championship getting underway on Easter weekend but I think Division 1A looks a little bit stronger than Division 1B based on the way the teams have been so far and that has definitely played into the waiting a little bit when okay. it comes to this too. That okay, that's fair enough. Uh, a lot of teams in 1A are in good form as well. Wexford, let's talk about them. Like, it's transformational. It's like they've been liberated into something new and different and it's unbelievably exciting to see their players fit, the, the collection of players they have fit at the moment who seem to be very enthusiastic and rested and... It's just interesting how much um, new blood can help from a managerial perspective. Yeah, look, sometimes the change is just important to rejuvenate a team. And the last couple of years, they've looked leggy. They've looked a little bit tired. Definitely last year looked like it was clear from the outset that it was going to be Davy Fitzgerald's last dance with that team. And, you know, they didn't get the summer championship performances out of them. And... Darry Egan has come in and he's definitely liberated their forwards a little bit. I think he's made a priority of particularly two key forwards who he wants to get the most out of this year. He wants Conor McDonald to be in scoring positions as opposed to some of the drifting that we saw from Conor, who's a supreme talent last year. And Rory O'Connor's come flying back from his hamstring injury. I'm actually surprised by how sharp he has come back. I know you were talking about the Dublin footballers coming back sharp. Like Rory O'Connor missed a nice bit of action, both with his college with DCU and also at Wexford's start of the year comes flying back in really good performance against Clare last weekend he scored five points in the week just gone by against Galway three points from play in the first half and Galway really struggled to deal with him because he's just got first of all great pace but he's got a great hurling brain in how he moves around as well and it seems that the two of them as inside forwards particularly are going to be given the opportunity to drift around get into space and dictate things for Wexford and it gives Wexford more of a scoring threat than they had last year because Wexford were more about in a way stopping the opposition against Davy and then trying to break against you they hurl a little bit more proactively so far under Darry Egan which is interesting to watch and then you take that that Wexford team still have Lee Chin to come back into the team which will be a big boost to their half forward line because a lot of these games where they played against the likes of Galway and against Limerick you would have thought that Chin in recent years and his physical were so key 
it's a wonderful problem for Darry Egan to have. It's where to fit Lee Chin back into the team when he comes back fully fit and firing. So you can't take away from anything Wexford have done so far. A little bit scrappy, not the best game against Galway last week, but Wexford get a huge win on the road. They should beat Offaly this Saturday lunchtime, and if they do so, they're going to a semi-final in the league. All right, and Cork, the best team in Ireland at the moment? Yeah, I mean, we saw... Everything that we were disappointed about in Cork in the All-Ireland final last year, they addressed in the game against Limerick, particularly in the first half last weekend. Like there was a bit of hunger, a bit of bite about them. We saw again, great running through the middle of the field. We know that they've got tremendous athletes. Conor Lahan again, played remarkably well. Darfus Gibbon in the middle of the field has carried on the form that we saw in the game against Clare and against Offaly. Like their goalkeeper was being used. If anyone wants to watch the hurling pod, we've got a good breakdown with Skehel about this as effectively a 15th outfield player last week. The Cork were happy enough on, I think it was 11 different occasions, they recycled the ball back to their goalkeeper and worked the ball back out from the back. So to do that against the Limerick team, who are usually very good at pressing up on the opposition as well, showed a bravery about Kingston's side. Shane Kingston got two goals before he was sent off. The sendings off kind of changed the course of the game a little bit. But the way that Cork hurled in that first half, the way that they put Clare to the sword in the first game, this, goal, this Cork team are moving really, really well so far, Jer. I know you've got your scepticism about them, but... I don't I really. I think their red tide is rising, as we've been talking about in the show for years, but it, it has to just get there at some point. Well, can I, can I ask, do you think there's yeah. a, a chance that the magnitude of the defeat in the All-Ireland final last year was just one of those freak occurrences? Not Freak is probably too strong, but just one of those things. Of course, Limerick are the best team in the country. They were certainly better than Cork on the day. But the way they beat them that day, I think we kind of came away from that thinking, right, this red tide, that's going to take years rather than months for that to actually come good and for them to, to potentially win an All-Ireland final. Do you think that they're actually a lot closer, even if you rewind the clocks of last year uh, between these these two teams? The gap is a bit smaller between these two teams than we thought. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's one of the things you can read an awful lot into a 70-minute performance when it came to the All-Ireland final last year. And like to give Limerick their credit... They sparkled in the All-Ireland final. Mm. They just moved the ball around and they took scores at will. And playing in a way that they really haven't been playing as freely this year so far in the first three games. But Cork answered so many of those questions on. Like, I think what would have annoyed a lot of Cork supporters last year is they went down without a fight in that All-Ireland final at all. There wasn't enough tackling. There wasn't enough of that kind of edge and grit that we saw in the Gaelic grounds, particularly in the first half last weekend. They hit a lot of wides. The the, The confidence drained from the team. Nothing they could do was working. And in the meantime three balls into the forward line three goals this game's over you know mm. yeah and look the other thing about this week Kieran Joyce has been a big addition to the Cork team too but I was incredibly impressed by how at this stage Patrick Horgan is starting to play too where we've had so long that he had to be the Tony Kelly like figure that we talked about with Claire, where Horgan was shouldering all of the responsibility scoring wise he was actually more than happy to be a bit of an instigator in the attacks last week, making off the ball running where players were just running from deep, which made it very difficult for Limerick to actually contain them because there were so many threats from Cork during the game. I accept, look, this weekend we might say, hey, Cork have lost out against Galway at Porky Cueve and we need to drop them back down to second or third position. But I think no one watching these hurling rankings right now can't be impressed by what Cork have done so far. All right, last question for you. Mark wants to know, did we ever find out who was at the start asking about these critics, these pundits? Yeah, it's Liam Kearns. There you go. It's Liam Kearns. I remember, I remember that infamous interview after a, he was the leash manager at the time. Why, why do you remember it? 
because uh, I rem- I was broadcasting. I'm pretty sure I was presenting on Midlands 103 at the time, and it went out maybe not live, but pretty much as live. I think it was a case of the commentary kit may well have been down there, and Liam Kearns uh, was very very annoyed at the media, and particularly I think some of the local media uh, after the you, game. You were so the critic. You were the pundit. Really? Uh, thankfully, it was, I don't think it was me. I think Liam and I actually got on fairly well, but I think, I think he took umbrage with our commentator at the time and deliberately got his name wrong when having a go at him as well. What was, what was pretty ice cold stuff from Liam. What was the the general? Uh, I mean, without uh, wandering into any uh, difficult areas here, what what was the general tone of the criticism that had so pissed him off? I think Liam was unhappy because I think he felt that some of the Leash media at the time were holding the team to the standard that they were at a few years previously under Mikko where they were contesting for Leinster Championships and they were in All-Ireland quarterfinals and the team was in a bit of a rebuild from the 2003 team at the time but yet I think the feeling was that some of the local media had written that they felt the team was underperforming under Liam Kearns. I right. can't remember the exact game they lost but I'm pretty sure that was a qualifier maybe in Carlow that night and yeah he... Decided to uh, have a hit back at the critics, and he that's might have been right. He might have been yeah, right. Look, you mean, know, it's been a, what, a like, long dark age. What have Leash done since? Like, what what have Leash really done in the last kind of this is good, ten like, years or so? The the Kildare Offaly Pincer movement uh, shitting on uh, Leash football is something that you know we're not really supposed to do in public. Will this is this is our our off air material? Yeah, well, look, they got to what, a couple of Leinster finals where they lost out to Dublin quite comfortably in recent times. But other than that, like, really, all did that. We all, we've all lost to Dublin at some point, yeah. But like, right. but, but realistically, like the Leash footballers, um, I think at that time, I think Liam was actually right that they were on a downward spiral. But the expectations were up, Jerry. You remember, like Leash had won minors all Ireland and had been very competitive at under twenty one. Did Leash win a minor all Ireland? They never talk about it. No, I've I've never heard it mentioned before. I think it may well have played into that two thousand and three Leinster team. But yeah, they, they were look the tails were up and expectations maybe were, were a bit higher than what was proven in the subsequent years. Yeah, well, good stuff. That's this week's power rankings. Cheers, lads. I absolutely adore them, lads. I have unbelievable time for them, but they're, they're a great bunch, but it's not acceptable. Here's what's on OTB Sports Radio for you today. You can get this on Smart Speaker, by the way. You just say, Alexa, play OTB Sports Radio, or uh, I, does it work with Siri? I presume it does. Is that how that works? I'm, I'm, I'm not used to the uh, the Apple ecosystem. But anyway, OTB Gold, Jerry Eisenberg talking about Muhammad Ali at one o'clock. It's great stuff. Leaders questions with Stuart Lancaster is our leadership series our retro panel is how far does doping go the answer is pretty far OTB Gold is Declan Murphy the jockey talking about his career as um, a really good flat jockey but who recovered from a traumatic brain injury and that book was called Centaurs sensational stuff and then the show with Nathan tonight from 7 o'clock we'll obviously have John Giles and plenty more analysis and reaction to everything that's going on in the world of sport as well but up next this morning Jason Quigley joins us to talk about a new documentary about him and his world title fight called Lift Your Heels OTB AM 14 minutes past 9 this morning you're very welcome along to OTB AM if you want to get in touch with us you can get us on uh, 0879180180 that's the WhatsApp number or of course you can always get us on uh, the YouTube comments youtube.com forward slash off the ball now Lift Your Heels is the story of Irish boxer Jason Quigley's journey to a world title fight and it airs next Thursday the 10th of March at half past ten on Virgin Media 2. So that's this day week. It was commissioned by Labrooks. The documentary will also be available to watch on the Virgin Media Player. And I'm delighted to say Jason Quigley is with us this morning. Jason, welcome back. How are you? Thanks. Yeah, good. The The decision to allow the cameras in for this in advance of the world title fight, was that a fairly obvious thing for you to do, that you wanted to make sure that you had a record and uh, that you were going to be able to get your story across in the build-up to the title fight? Yeah, I think it was... Um 
I think, yeah, I think it was a no-brainer, to be honest. You know, I think it was something that uh, it's going to be one of the highlights of my, my life, my career, uh, fighting for a world title and uh, to allow the cameras in behind the scenes and uh, to follow my journey. And, you know, something that I'm not so used with is kind of coming into my personal life as well, which was uh, which was interesting for me. And, um, yeah, I was... Uh, I was very welcoming of it and uh, I really enjoyed it also. We always use the word interesting uh, as like a proxy for a pain in the hole. So... Because <laughs> 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 in fairness... Be honest, you know, it, um, I'm pretty easy going. Like, you know, so... I just kind of had the crack with it, you know, more than anything. Whenever, whenever the cameras were in and they were asking questions, I just was... As you'll see in the documentary, you know, if anybody that knows me personally will see that I come across the exact same in the documentary as I do just in normal day life. And that's the way that I wanted to be with it. I didn't want to make a wild kick or a fuss about it or try to come across as somebody that I'm not. I wanted to be truthfully honest. I wanted to be uh, real. And I think that all that came across because... I didn't really get nervous when the cameras were around or I didn't really worry too much about it. I just I just battered on with, uh, of course, my, my, my main goal and my main focus was preparing for the world title fight. The only difference was there was cameras kind of following me around, bits and pieces um, day-to-day, here-to-there, uh, in the gym, out of the gym, cooking the dinner at the house, you know, a few different things like that. But... Yeah, it wasn't a pain in the hole. It wasn't. <laughs> um, I, I did. I did really enjoy it, and um, I hope it comes across well. <laughs> well I, but I'm sure it does. That's the thing. Like you've always been incredibly authentic in your dealings with the media. I, I suppose I was talking really about the the painful stuff in your life and actually having to revisit that and speak about that because I know you, you made the decision to talk to Vincent Hogan in the build up to the title fight about your relationship with your dad and, and how that had developed and evolved in the time that you'd been a, a professional fighter and like it's a difficult story you know we, we all all families have uh, difficult aspects to their story and for you to, to speak about that uh, must have been difficult and or, or was that, again, just part of growing up and maturing as somebody who's like, oh, look, this is my story, I'm going to tell my story and I'm going to be completely authentic so my supporters know the truth and everybody knows the truth and I am who I am? Yeah, like, um, there's nothing really I do in life that, that I try to hide or anything, you know, I'm a very open, honest person and that's what I wanted to come across, like, on the documentary as well because that's 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 just me, that's just who I am. But I think a professional athlete or any athlete at all that's that's uh, in the middle of their career and you know going through that that real high phase in their career, we don't really have time to sit back and look at how our life kind of panned out. Like it's it's a hundred miles an hour all the time. Like it's one fight to the next. It's you know, when am I fighting? When's training camp start? Everything's just looking ahead, looking ahead and working towards getting something, getting to that world title shot, getting that um, big fight, getting, you know, achieving your goals. Like everything, every single day, every training session is working towards that. We don't really get the time to sit back, pause and to think of what we've come through in life, what uh, what has happened in our life. 
good, the bad, the ugly. Um, but I got asked some some very personal questions and I said to myself going into this that I knew that this was probably going to come up and I was going to be honest and yes, you know, looking back at where, I, where I've come from, where I've grown up from, um, the relationships that I've had throughout my career, you know, even in my, my personal life and my family, yes, touching base and all that was very difficult. Uh, brought up a lot of uh, emotions, a lot of memories, good and bad. And um, I was kind of, at the end of it, I was relieved and happy that I did go back and sit with all that and that I did kind of confront all that and, you know, try to work my head around it. But it was difficult talking about relationship with my father, you know, looking at the looking at the journey that my, my mother has been on with me and looking also just at the journey my fiance April and our little one Sierra has been on as well like because you don't get the time to really sit that stuff that's going on in your everyday life you don't get that time to sit and look at that it's just constantly happening um, and yeah it, it definitely was difficult it was challenging for sure is that totally separate from you as a competitor or is that something that you either have to compartmentalize during your career or actually tap into for motivation during your career? A little bit of everything that you just said. Um, I think, you know, to be a boxer, you kind of have to have a split personality. Um, you need to be able to like, like when you get into the ring, if you're a friendly person, you can't be a friendly person when you get into the ring. Like it's two lads going in to knock the head of each other. And, you know, you need that, you need that switch where you can uh, change, change person, you know, really. And that's, that's the blunt of it. Like you have to, anybody that knows me and they'll know that I'm a very kind of welcoming person. I chat, I have fun with anybody and whoever, you know, I wouldn't be a, I wouldn't be a very shy person. I'd be out there open and friendly. I think in a way other people might have a different opinion, but whenever you get into the ring and whenever you're, you're coming face to face to, to fighting somebody, um, you have to change that mindset. You have to become more ruthless, more vicious, more, uh, more dogged in your uh, in your approach to uh, to the fight and and then that feeds off into your kind of personal life as well a little bit getting closer to the fight it, the decision to talk about these things is um isn't one that just affects you as well it obviously affects the people you're talking about was there a response from your family to the piece you did with Vincent Hogan where you spoke about your your relationship with your dad how are things now well we'll find out whether <laughs> Whenever it's out on the TV, but yeah, this this has crossed my mind. You know, I'm I'm hoping that it won't cause any any issues or anything like that. There, you know, because I just I've been honest, and you know, me and my father, we've went through periods where where we talk, where we don't talk, um, and it kind of says in the documentary that. Don't want to spoil anything, but uh, I says in the documentary a little bit on we're not really talking at the minute, and I think I'm at a stage where I'm not ready to kind of move forward in that relationship or to try and mend things in that relationship right now because it's just too difficult, and I'm just getting other parts of my life together 
and I want to focus and concentrate on that because it has tried to be mended in the past and, and it has been too difficult and too messy and I'm kind of choosing now to just to uh, to let it sit for another while and maybe down the line we might come together again and talk, you know, and mend things a bit. But as of right now, I think for the both of us um, that, it, that it's probably best that it is just uh, just the way that it is a little bit silent at the minute. Are you okay with that or is it kind of heartbreaking? It's... Um, it's difficult, like, don't get me wrong. Um, it definitely is difficult because anybody who knows my boxing career early on in my career, it has been, uh, my father has been a massive part of my career. He's, well, uh, I was going to say, the first time we ever met you, the two of you were in, in these studios hanging out, thick as thieves, and it just looked yeah. like it was, um, you know, you guys were, were meant for each other, like chip off the old block, real inspiration to each other. I've never seen a, a more proud parent. A hundred percent, like, and even though me and my father have fallen out and we don't really speak at the minute, I I couldn't say a bad word about him. Like, you know, um, everything that he has done for me and my career has, um, has really helped me and molded me to the person that I am today. And I have been forever grateful for that. But then I think is a lot of sports people will know that when parents are involved with, um, the athlete, the, boxer the footballer whatever it shall be things can get complicated things can get a bit intense and you know me going through my career was I was a young kid and you know you always kind of listen to your father and your father's your idol and then you know I, I start becoming an adult then and I have my own life to live you know I have my own my own family then kind of you know a different part of family and I started living that life as well. And, you know, sometimes that can make things a little bit complicated. And that's kind of where things probably went a wee bit, you know, a wee bit rocky then. And I was just growing up, I was starting to become my own person. And I think my father maybe still thought that I was that young child, that a teenager that kind of needed taught everything and needed told everything. Whereas I'm a very disciplined person, train hard, do everything inside and outside the gym correctly. And, uh, you know, there was a little bit of knocking heads there, which it doesn't matter if a son and a father is that close in sport as well as personal life. Fathers and sons usually always knock heads at some stage. But I think because me and my father were so very close, it was it was a little bit more of a bigger deal. And um, as I said of right now, you know, I, I'm very grateful for everything that my father has done for me. Um, part of the reason why I am the person that I am today. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of things that went on as well that might have affected me in a negative way that um, I'm just not looking to step back into that kind of environment or atmosphere yet until that environment and atmosphere is fixed and and, and is a lot better than what it was. So as of right now, I need to look after myself and and, and my family and um, my fiancé and our little one. You know, that to me is the most important thing right now of being 100% happy, which 
over the last couple of years, I have become massively and so happy in life and so happy with everything going on. And uh, the, my father's situation is such a big, it's a big thing that, yes, I'm probably a little bit afraid to step back and to, to talk about that and to kind of get back into that, not toxic environment, but to get back into that maybe challenging environment where emotions and things are kind of a little bit all over the place. It isn't balanced. But um, yeah, we have we have a lot of things to work out and I just don't think now is the right time to do that. I think maybe future down the line, whenever we're a little bit more settled in life. Yeah, and I think um, that sounds like a very mature thing to do, to get your own house, literally and metaphorically, in order so that you're able yeah. to deal with whatever emotional trauma is coming. 100%, because was a lot of emotional trauma there and you know as any kid wants to do he always wants to please his father and you know you always look up to your father and things like that and that was just something that was was very difficult for me and you know maybe caused a lot of anxiety a lot of stress a lot of pressure on me and um yeah it was just it, it was it was an environment that wasn't very comfortable for me and that I didn't really enjoy leading more when I came to my 20s, uh, late teens, early 20s, because I was starting to become a man. I was a lot freer. I was living my own life then, whereas I felt still a little bit smothered um, in certain aspects of my life by the coach-father situation, not being able to kind of divide that or not be able to separate that. And it was kind of difficult just to have a relationship as a father and son. Um, It was kind of probably wasn't existing at all that kind of relationship and that was probably what I wanted more rather than a, than a boxer coach it, it, This speaks a lot to people's identity as, as sports people and, and you guys always need to tread that line between living your life, particularly the boxer where if you lead a lifestyle that prevents you from training as often as you need to train to be ready for whenever the fights arrive then you're not going to be able to do yourself justice. So how do you separate who you are as a man from who you are as a professional and your job? And like it's it's impossible, particularly when you're trying, to, you're striving to make it. If you were to go back, is there any advice you'd give yourself about like having an exterior life to the the boxer that Jason Quigley is? Because that's your business. But then you also just have to have this relationship with your fiance and, and your daughter and your mum and your dad. At some point, you're going to want that relationship. You know, I think anybody, anybody successful is a strange word, okay, because people look at success as in for boxers, world title belts, um, you know, footballers, trophies, uh, signing with these big teams. And, you know, people look at that as success. Whereas to me now in this stage of my life, my success is happiness, contentment, because anybody that goes and reaches serious heights in their career, inside or out of sport, there is so much heartache, there is so much hard times come along with that. There's so many people out there, you see big business people and you know high sports athletes that maybe miss the first couple of years of their child's life that maybe miss family functions. And yes, these are the sacrifices that you have to make and that we are willing to make to be successful. 
but there's sometimes comes a stage in your career where you're like what's important to me what means the most to me now and you know all these kind of thoughts and emotions and and stuff is kind of coming to the surface with me right now but what you were saying is the loved ones in your life the family they do get rejected and left on the shelf a lot whenever you are a high competing elite athlete or a very successful business person because there's so much time away from home there's so much things that you can't just do and spend quality time that's one of the things that I take a massive um, a massive positive from lockdown and the whole COVID situation was the time that I got to spend with my family like it was just unbelievable because I never had that before. I never had the peace of mind and the contentment to nothing's happening, nothing's coming up. I don't unpack in your suitcase to get it packed again to go away. There was just a sense of calm, a sense of peace, a sense of just being in the moment. And, you know, I relished that time with my family and spent so much quality time with them. And it just uh, it made the world a difference to to my inner peace and happiness, and it just I seen the whole relationships blossom as a, as a family. Because I I do remember times when we would talk to you before, and uh, you were in the states, and you were like, oh, you know, I'm I'm looking out the window, and it's sunshine, and there's boats. What's not to like? What's not to be happy? But it did sound a little bit like you were faking it, kind of convincing yourself that this is what happiness and success is supposed to look like. I remember driving down the street in Donegal one time in Ballybuffet and seeing you and you just looked happy you were like you know like you are in your correct environment here you are fully actualised as a person what does this mean for your career now what like are you finished are you thinking actually now that I've found this peace and contentment there's going to be a, a second blossoming where I, I go on as a boxer what, what are you thinking well like for me anybody that knows I love Donegal I love where I come from and I was essentially probably faking it when I was in LA because not that I was faking it intentionally. I was faking it to myself because I had to tell myself that this is the place for me to be like, you're living in LA, you have an apartment looking over a marina, Venice Beach is your back garden. Like, meeting celebrities, being in the mix with all the the top professional boxers. If I had told anybody that I'm not really happy living this life or this isn't really for me, people would have thought I was mad and people would have thought I was crazy and being like, how is that? How do you not enjoy that? And maybe that was me thinking that, that that's what they were thinking. But, you know, the first six months to a year was unbelievable. It was new, it was fresh, it was it was great. But, you know, after that, I kind of did find out that this just doesn't sit with me. This isn't the person that I am. And going on to your question, like, what is, what is this for me now? Like, yes, I have found this peace and this happiness and, and, and really enjoying life. But I have been doing that over the last maybe two, three years now. And I have still been boxing, I have still been competing, and I have got probably to the the pinnacle of my career or the pinnacle of a career fighting for the world title. The next step is becoming a world champion. 
but I really enjoyed that journey. I enjoyed that process and I was happy doing that, working with Andy in Dublin majority of the time and then maybe we'll go away for camp whether it's over to Fury's camp. So it's something that I have to sit with right now. It's something that um, I'm obviously still in the process of recovery with the jaw. I just got my uh, plates out two weeks ago. So that was another surgery that I had to get done. I got two plates in here and here, and I got those plates removed, which was the exact same surgery, but just removing them. And I have another bit of recovery and time to heal for that. And then I'll sit down with the team and uh, we'll see what's uh, we'll see what's next down the line for uh, for me and my career. Are you thinking about a life after boxing anyway? Like, are you putting down roots and uh, a security blanket so that the eggs aren't all just in the fighting game? for the foreseeable future because you know you start thinking about kids and your responsibility to them and and your family as you've talked about like you'll have to provide for them after the boxing game is over and you'll want to do stuff on a day to day basis because you're obviously clearly an active person so are you thinking about that? Yeah I think um, I finally become an adult I suppose <laughs> once you start thinking like that you, you start realising that, that you're an adult and that you have responsibilities Um but yeah, without a doubt, you know, the last couple of years, obviously I knew I was coming to the back end of my career. And, um, you know, I know I live a good, clean, healthy life and I can go on well into uh, into my 30s of boxing. But, you know, I have been thinking what, what comes after boxing, you know, where, what avenues. There's probably, there's probably a handful of fighters that never have to work or never have to box again financially when they're finished boxing and I mean a handful I mean maybe five fighters that never have to to do a day's work again as in earn money after boxing so every boxer needs to look at what's after boxing um, and for me yes I have been looking at it and over the last couple of years you know it was actually Jerry Hussey that helped me you know start planning that and start realizing that boxing doesn't last forever and you know start making that separate identity that you're not just Jason Quigley a boxer you're Jason Quigley whatever you want to be and that really helped me mentally and in my way of of looking at my life after boxing because since 10 years of age anybody mentions Jason Quigley it's oh that's the boxer you know, that is my identity. And that's something scary to walk away from as well because that's all I've known for 20 years and that's all that people kind of know me for is 20 years. So what I have been thinking and what... Firstly, I've been looking, what would I like to do? What would I enjoy and what what could I give back to the world after after boxing? And anybody as I've been saying knows I've been on here and I've been talking before about going through hard times going through dark times and I'm someone now that is that is at the other side of that and I'm someone that um, is so grateful and so happy in myself that that I have come to the other side of that and you know being down in the dumps being very under the weather and you know, just not being happy in life is such a scary thing, but it's such a simple thing as well to get over whenever you have the right people talking to you, the right people around you. 
and being in the right environment and that is something that I'd be very passionate about after boxing is helping people live a good lifestyle, live a happy lifestyle, a healthy lifestyle, keep in shape, eat well, you know, all these simple things. I always thought growing up that getting a massive big house, driving a Lamborghini, doing all this kind of stuff would make me happy. But those things only last a short period of time. It's about finding the inner peace and the inner happiness inside of you. And that's something as well that, that Jerry Hussey and his wife Miriam have really helped me with over the last couple of years is, is just finding that happiness inside of me. And now I want to be able to give back after boxing to people and help them show them that you don't have to be depressed, you don't have to be upset, you don't have to be anxious about things. Yes, these things are going to continue to keep coming up in life. We're going to be throwing challenges. It's not you're going to be living in cloud nine for the rest of your life. But we're more prepared now to deal with those situations, to to get through those situations, to manage those situations, and at the end of it, be happy and be proud of yourself for getting over those hurdles and getting to a place in your life that you're happy majority of the time and any any issues or any problems come along that you can deal with those and you can manage those. Uh, teaching people to be resilient is an amazing thing to be able to, to do and your backstory is going to be a brilliant example for you to, to um, pull on whenever you get there. So whatever happens in the ring and out of the ring, there's obviously loads more in this story, Jason. We wish you the very best with it and we're really looking forward to seeing the documentary next week as well. 100%. Thanks for having me on and thanks to my team, uh, Phil at Swish, Swish uh, Films for, for making this documentary, Ladbrokes, for putting it all together as well and uh, my family and team and all around me. It's, uh, it's been a great journey and as you say, this is uh, the start now maybe of the second chapter of, uh, of the journey but thanks very much for having me on. Well, we'll be there for it as well, Jason. Thanks a million. Cheers. Take care. Thanks. Cheers. So that documentary airs next Thursday night the 10th of March at half past 10. It's called Lift Your Heels and uh, it's obviously about Jason Quigley's journey to a world title fight on Virgin Media 2. It is 9.42. We went a bit later on that than we were supposed to but it was definitely worth it. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Adrian Owen are going to be joined by Ron Nogara, Brian Kerr, Al Foran in studio tomorrow to talk about his new podcast with Go Loud. There's the GA Quick Picks and the Crappy Quiz as well. It's an all-star lineup on tomorrow's OTBAM so make sure you're live here for it at... Um, uh, half past seven tomorrow morning and for the first time since March 2020 we're doing live commentary from a Premier League ground because of travel restrictions and COVID a reminder this Sunday off the ball are heading to the Etihad Brian Kerr and Nathan Murphy are on commentary for the Manchester Derby kickoff is at half past four we're bringing you live and exclusive national radio commentary and reaction across OTB OTB AM with Gillette get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar